This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Thursday to you. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang, we're gathered. We've been researching all night. Uh, and Terry's got his label maker out, so you know something crazy is going down. Yeah, someone left this here. I'm going to play with it. All you right. stole it from Lynn? You might want to rip was, off the label on it, it that has his name yeah, on it. Yeah, he put the label. That's an he interesting use own, there. Yeah. I like that. Uh, I do need a few labels. I'll get to those in a minute. we got a lot of uh, interesting stuff today we're going to be getting into. Um, corporate America, does it need to be thinking more about just the, more than just profits? So much of the time, it's just about making the money, right? It's making the money. And uh, in, the re- in reality, the, do, does corporate America not have another responsibility? It's a big deal. So, oh, there goes a the label. Terry's printing a label. So we'll be talking about uh, corporate America's need to give back. Um, also, of course, we're going to have to get into um, Etu Brute. Caesar must die. Caesar must die. Wow. The Ides of March. That's right. And I always love the Ides of March. It's always a good day. Yeah, I never knew why it was such a big deal. Even when I took Latin, not to brag, but I took Latin in uh, from fifth to eighth grade. Maybe like the, the 25 stab wounds was a bad thing. That was bad. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it was bad for Caesar. Yeah, but if, if that wouldn't have happened, I don't, I don't know if we would have had it was, his wonderful dressing. It was probably bad for Rome. It was probably just very in bad general. For that. Overall, when you have Cleopatra, one part of government murdering another part of government, yeah. probably not the best. No, but now what we do is we just uh, bore each other to death. Don't you? I mean, do you think we would have his dressing if that event did not take place? No, no, I don't. And what a great contribution Caesar gave. We've also got to thank uh, the the lovely Crouton. Yeah, a two Crouton. There <laughs> you go. Doesn't really have the same flow. It, it kind of you know. By the way, I've been officially labeled. Um, Terry printed out a label, Matt, and put it yep. on my shoulder. Just so we're aware. Terry's a huge believer in labeling yeah. people. He's a, he's, a big, he's a big labeler. By the way, um, hmm, United Airlines did it again. No. They did it again. No. You, just when you thought that they could, their stock price was going to come back and everything was good. I never thought that, by the way. <laughs> you didn't? I mean, I mean, they really are a great airline. They just, oh, they were this close. Mm. And then they put a dog up in the overhead baggage compartment. Oh, come on. What are those cute little mini bulldogs? Oh, oh is that what it was? And it was, oh. in, a, it was in a dog carrier. Oh. And the, whoever was the... Steward person is like you must put that in the overhead. I thought they said that you can you can have your animal at your feet. I thought that was one of the rules. Don't people pay extra to bring their animals on the plane? Yeah, I would I would assume so. And Ooh. and but oh, and the poor dog died. And then they just happened serious? to ship another one off that was supposed to be going to Kansas to Kansas <sighs> to Japan. It ended up in Japan. But the funny part is a Great Dane ended up in Kansas. Can you imagine so when they, that when that dog owner opened up their little kennel and this huge Great Dane walks out? People walked in and went, I what? didn't order a horse. What? No. This is the wrong dog. This supposed to be a 10-year-old oh, German that's shepherd. that's tragic. And imagine, imagine that you, you find out on the plane your dog dies. That's just horrible. 
So I don't know what they're going to do to get out of this one. Do we'll you give think them some vouchers. Is, do you think this is worse than the previous incident? Well, the previous incident involved a human and their rights. And dragging him off a plane. And his head but he didn't bouncing. die. He didn't die. But humans and dogs are different, right? Although but, he wished he was dead, as oh, he said. Yeah, later just he kill was, me, just yeah, kill me. Yeah, that was sad, too. Oh, 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 he, uh, but this is just more bad PR. That's the sad thing. That, yeah. And a dead dog. And apparently they have quite a few incidences of animals dying on their airplanes well, I, recently, too. Well, and I, I didn't know this, but there's a statistic for how many animals die on airlines. Wow. It, it, like, this is an issue. This is a thing. How are you supposed to ship your, your, your pet? How are you supposed to help them travel with you somewhere? I guess from now on, you just got to drive them. Just drive them. It's just ironic that you bring this animal on the plane to be your comfort animal. Yeah. And this one may not have been a comfort animal. It just may have been transporting their little pooch. Yeah. Ah. But it does But uh, in the overhead compartment, you know, right next to someone's Subway sandwich. <laughs> oh, it's sad. That's sad, for later. Sad stuff. Let's get to the rest of the headlines. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? Republican leaders are delivering a stern warning to their incumbent lawmakers in the wake of the Pennsylvania special election. It's time to get out to work. It's time to get to work, run a real campaign. Speaker Paul Ryan, in a meeting with House Republicans Wednesday on uh, Capitol Hill, reportedly warned his party that Democrat Democratic enthusiasm is real and last night should serve as a wake-up call, referring to the Pennsylvania election. The uh, They finally announced that the Democrat won. Uh, Mr. Saccone? No, Mr. No, Lamb. 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 Yeah. Lamb the sham. Lamb the sham. By and the then way, President Trump took credit for the win. Oh, good. <laughs> the win of his <laughs> loss. Of the Demo- no, he yeah. took credit for the Democrat winning. Oh, good. Because he had similar, there was a couple items that he was yeah. similar with the president. So he's like, look, he's running on my, my bill, my he, ticket he, here. He better actually learn the lesson here. There's a lesson here. Well, By the way, they're also saying quit putting out wilted candidates. Right. He said members need to get to work, be prepared, not get caught off guard. The strong words follow a tough night for the GOP as uh, as they lost. So it says the Republican con- uh, Congressional Committee Chairman Representative Steve Strivers told GOP lawmakers at their meeting, you need to run a real race. Don't get in there and think like, oh, this guy's just some uh, puppet from the Democrats. They tossed in there just to be a sacrificial lamb. Yeah. As the guy's last name was <laughs> Lamb. But, you know, they could turn out to be a real candidate that you can't stop the momentum because yeah. of, you know, th- people have a negative. There, there are some aspects of politics people don't like, and they could attach that to you, and then you can't get that off, and then you're you can't stuck. shake it. So he goes on and says, um, he also warned them not to get outraised and outspent to define themselves and then define their opponent. Yeah. Apparently that wasn't done in Pennsylvania, and it the guy lost. And by the time he started doing it, the thing he came up with was, these people don't like God. That Remember, that was yeah. his comment the night before, which seemed like a stretch and a reach. And right. he was criticized for it. Chris Hayes on MSNBC Wednesday night said... Um, Oh, that's a different story. We'll get to that in a second. Don't so worry about as, that. As, essentially, it comes down to you need to run a real campaign. Yeah. Don't act like you can just go through the motions, but go out and raise money and actually run. Like and you're- learn. They, again, the Republicans, nothing fails like success. And they were successful in the last election, which will lead to their failure in the next election if they don't learn. Yes. Well, that and other things. Well, it's common for the first midterm to go against whatever party's in the White House. Yeah. That's just kind of how this works. So. But but again, let's be very clear. Trump didn't lose. Trump actually helped the Democrat win. That's what he said. He said that in St. Louis in a, a speech he gave. 
That may actually be also, scary for they any said Republicans. To be, uh, other, other Republican pundit-type people are pointing out that Trump came in and closed the gap for the Republicans. So look what he did. He goes. He he made he uh, he improved the Republican by seven points, even though he lost. Well, Trump still has that effect. Many would also argue that Trump also created an enormous gap for this poor well, Republican that as might well. Be, that might be there too. They're not saying that. they're not saying that, yeah. but yeah. President Trump has selected a former cable news host, Larry uh, Kudol, Kudlow, there we yeah. go, to replace Gary Cohn as his chief economic advisor. Former cable news host as of, what, yesterday afternoon? Not like it was like 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders announced this Wednesday Larry uh, Kudlow was offered and accepted the position as uh, president of economic policy and director of the National Economic Council. Uh, we will work to have an orderly transition, and we'll keep everyone posted on the timing of him officially assuming the role. The Washington Post, CNBC, and Political all reported earlier that the 70-year-old Kudlow, who previously worked in the Reagan administration, accepted the job offer Tuesday evening. Much like Cohn, Kudlow is an outspoken advocate in favor of free market economic policies and against policies like steel tariffs. So that's an interesting pick. Yeah, that's a hard one to walk in on. Uh, but uh, Kudlow went on CNBC right after the announcement. He goes, I didn't know the announcement was happening on Wednesday. I wasn't watching TV this morning. The president called and said, it's out. Because I don't think he was uh, intending to put it out till maybe tomorrow or Friday. He goes, I said, oh, he said, Trump said, he goes, you're on the air. He said, I'm looking at a picture of you. Very handsome. Very Trumpian. So not only wow. do people get fired on TV, but they also get hired, on, got TV. hired on TV. So you're hired. This goes to that Chris Hayes thing I was talking about on MSNBC Wednesday night. said, Trump TV is a pipeline for Trump hires. He pointed to Fox host turned State Department spokeswoman Heather Nauert's new promotion. Despite having zero prior experience in diplomacy, Trump just installed Nauert as the acting undersecretary of state for public diplomacy. In less than a year, she's gone from Fox and Friends to the number four person at the State Department. Wow. So what's really happening is Trump TV is really happening. Yeah. He's not just the president. He's also now creating a major network. He's bringing a lot of network talent back to Washington to then run his presidency. The head of veteran affairs or yeah, veteran affairs, he's under he's having a lot of problems with yeah, some infighting maybe and on his purchases way. and there's some Wimbledon trip with his wife that was paid for by tax dollars Which or something. I don't something. see the big deal. Wimbledon's great. Rumors are he's going to be re- replaced with the guy that's currently hosting Fox and Friends weekends. Oh wow. Yeah. When so, does when does Hannity I'm not sure. become a cabinet member? Maybe Secretary of Defense. Cuz he may be on the way out too. Yeah. Just bring in Hannity. He knows that's what he's doing. Exciting. Uh, three students were injured when a math teacher fired her semi-automatic handgun at a ceiling of a classroom during a firearm safety course Tuesday at Seaside High School in Monterey, California. Do not do Whoops. this. <laughs> he goes, it's the craziest thing, thing, said Furman Gonzalez, whose 17-year-old son was apparently bruised by a bullet fragment. It could have been very bad. The math teacher, Dennis Alexander, teaches an administration of justice course, which is where he fired the weapon. He also is a reserve police officer in the uh, uh, local police department. Although, uh, since the incident has been placed on, he, he's been placed on administrative leave, both by the school and the police department. School district officials told reporters that he had not been authorized to carry the firearm on school grounds. Hmm, yeah. So, he misfired in the air, bullet fragments hit other students, they, you know, injured, whatever. What, what, what was he, he teaches a, a like criminology class? It's a, what, what they call it here? He teaches an administration of justice course. 
Oh, well, so he, was he administering justice? I'm I got your justice sure. for you right here. Yeah, <laughs> Boys and girls, this is what we call justice. It's a nine millimeter. Oops. Bam. Oops, sorry. Wow. Hold the, on. Three rounds? Three uh, three rounds. Hold on. So was it a semi-automatic? Well, no. It's a semi-automatic handgun. So he, he misfired three. Three times. Yeah. Oops. I mean, you get a misfire seems to usually be one time. Well, yeah. I mean, but, by, the, by, by the third time, you, you ought to be knowing, hey, I'm misfiring. <laughs> Uh, and finally, James Comey, yeah. former FBI director. His new book is getting the Harry Potter treatment, according to Politico. A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies, and Leadership is the title of the book. The upcoming memoir from the... When do you get to write a memoir? Uh, Have you written a memoir yet? No. No. Is that more of a personal accounting? I've written a war. A war, but not Never a, a memoir. Hmm. Okay. So the former FBI director of book coming out April 18th with the anticipation rivaling that of the cult of children's favorite Harry Potter yeah. books. Uh, the publisher is taking extreme precautions to prevent potentially explosive revelations detailing Comey's interactions with the president. Uh, he didn't want any of that leaking out. So instead of circulating multiple print drafts among the editors and agents working on the book, the publisher has implemented a password-protected electronic system so that only those involved in the project have access to it. The project is stored under a code name so the staffers who are not involved in the project wouldn't know where to find it even if they tried. Wow. At warehouses that will ship the copies of the book, workers are being asked to sign non-disclosure agreements according to people familiar with the procedures. And while books typically ship out of warehouses about two weeks before their official publication dates, sometimes landing on bookshelves days early, you hear about that sometimes, the shipping date for Comey's book is expected to be moved closer to the publication date to keep a tighter lid on the physical copies. Mm, Incredible. Do you remember um, in Harry Potter, there's the Cloak of Invisibility? I've heard of it. I've never read the books or watched the movies, so I don't know. But yeah, I've no, heard hold of on. It. Are yeah. you serious? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, you're serious. Yeah, you've never. No. What? Yeah. The books are better than the movies. Well, but this is the guy that's watched every Marvel comic yep. known to man, mm. but somehow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so do you remember th- this does make sense because uh, what's his name? Uh, Comey. Yeah. Remember when he had to hide? He hid in the curtains. In the curtains, wearing his blue suit. He tried to blend in. Blend into the curtain. Yeah. Cloak of invisibility. Except he's like six ah. seven or something. Maybe he is Harry Potter. Mm. That's one as big an adult. cloak. <clears throat> oh yeah. Did you know that in DC there's they have cloak rooms everywhere you go? Really? Yeah. So there's a lot of wizards there. Yeah. Washington wizards. Hmm. Um. Wow. So Comey's coming out with a book. Yes. Scaramucci's coming out with a book. Well, what would his be? Like the shortest it's something pra- run ever? Well, it's praising uh, the blue-collar-esque oh. Oh, okay. policies of the Trump administration, oh, okay. basically. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and his probably week-long stint as the director of communications. But by, by the way, I mean, it seems like it didn't last long, but it was deep. It was just to get Reince Priebus fired. That was the whole point. That worked. Because <laughs> um, then he went on TV and started calling him names, and then Trump saw that and fired him. You look weak on TV. You're fired. And then that guy was fired. Okay. It's great. <sighs> I'm just impressed that executive time is productive. He's actually doing, like, like uh, a job search. He's, he's looking for yeah. new employees. Oh, I yeah. mean, other like people... for himself? Is he looking for a, a new job? Or... No, Trump, oh, okay. Trump, Trump's job is being Trump. 
I see. Right? So, I mean, he's on there looking for new staff because he's like, I don't like these old guys. Let's get some new people in here. Get but, some new fresh ideas. Yeah. like Yeah. And and since he's watching TV, he sees all these people with great ideas because they, they're on TV. Well, and they so have, he hires them. And all. they have more than great ideas. They've got great hair, great makeup. Right. They look good. Well, Kudlow doesn't have much hair, but. No, but Kudlow is, he's just kind of known. He's a known brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, financial brain. It doesn't mean he studied the theory behind all of this to the depth that maybe a lot of times you you go tap Harvard, right, to bring in you know their ap- their academic backgrounds of you yeah, know, not that, a guy who may be favoring a stock because maybe they they're coming up in the commercial break. Yeah, right. Not to say that ever not happened. That, not that they do that, but it's a thought. I don't know. I think it'd be really hard to be the president. I really do. Because, really? Well, yeah. Who do you? Really, everybody, I don't know. everybody questions everything you do. Apparently, but, uh, work starts at 11 a.m. every morning. Well, no, but his work starts when he's up at 5 a.m. Well, his brain's just churning. Right, but that's just a... And then you got to wait for the good news to come on, which is usually not till 6 or 6.30. He's just trying to make the morning news with his tweets. So that's why he gets up early. He's that's trying true. just to meet certain times of the day. He knows when his tweets are most effective. He sees the analytical data. Yeah. Do you think he looks at that? No, I think he just tweets. I think he's just winging it. Um, okay, well, that's that's good news, I guess. <laughs> it's news. Uh, boy, the UK sure are coming down hard on the Russians. The Russians. I do believe the Russians may be facing a bigger problem than they're anticipating here. Yeah. It's interesting to see how the UK was so ticked about – I mean, there was an attack uh, with nerve gas, mm-hmm. a nerve agent in a restaurant in the UK – did it end up killing the two? They're still in critical condition, both a father and a daughter. The father is a double agent that worked for Russia, but then you know informed to the British, yeah, special you know uh, secret service people. But they, I mean, there's 21 people that were probably infected by the nerve agent. It's a big deal. And they destroyed pieces of the restaurant because it was contaminated. And you, you, you conduct this on on foreign soil, and now they're pushing back. Russia says it's all lies, and they want to investigate themselves and all this stuff. But yeah. it just looks like Russia keeps pushing out. And it's one thing to do things diplomatically, but yeah. they're, they're, like, striking out against the United States, against against now Great Britain, or against England, and, and other countries in Europe. Their Germany and France have had some manipulation in their elections, and people are getting ticked off. It makes it makes America look really kind of weak in comparison. Well, we just probably haven't been found out yet. Well, well but we... We do, We haven't said anything about the election stuff. We haven't. We're just like, yeah. We Obama kicked out diplomats and shut down two Russian yeah. facilities, and then some of that was. Are you saying we're scared? Uh, something. Something's going on. Hmm. We're just not as. It seems like we should be as angry as the UK is angry, but it doesn't seem like we are. We'll figure it out. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about corporate America. Do they need to get back to thinking about more than just profits? Does corporate America have a responsibility, an obligation to build and strengthen society? We'll be talking about it up next.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Should companies be doing more to make the world a better place? Some people believe that corporate America should get back to thinking about more than just profits. By the way, like like many did many years ago. Uh, it's This isn't a new idea, uh, and we're going to be reviewing it and, and um, trying to learn whatever we can from Dr. Marina Whitman, who's a professor of business administration and public policy at the University of Michigan. She's also a former senior executive at General Motors. Uh, Dr. Whitman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Terry. Good morning. This is so good to have you. This um, Here's the question for you, Marina. If we look at this... Corporate America has an obligation, obviously, to make money, um, but in the making of the money, they also seem to also have an an amazingly strong place in our society, pillars, if you will, that hold up our society. How do they know how to balance it all? It's very tough, as you suggest. Um, In the decades right after World War II, uh, they managed to do both, largely because they didn't have a great deal of competition. Uh, within the United States, companies were very highly concentrated, so not much competition. And the rest of the world, either because they were still recovering from World War II or because they hadn't become sufficiently developed yet, couldn't give our companies much competition. So along with that absence of competition came very high profits, which meant that they could make money and satisfy their shareholders and also do good things for their workers. Um, in those days, workers expected to spend their lives working for the same company and then getting a nice pension at the end. Mm. And they could also help their communities and do uh, a variety of good works without stockholders unhappy. But gradually, uh, Europe and Japan recovered, and some of the developing countries developed, and competition became much fiercer, and profit levels dropped, and companies, uh, therefore, started to focus more and more on the bottom line and move away from the things they used to do for workers and communities. And as you know, most workers now do expect to work for a whole variety of different companies during their working lives. And the kind of security that used to come with a lifetime job just isn't there anymore. Yeah. you um, In your article, Corporate America Needs to Get Back to Thinking About More Than Just Profits, you cited um, BlackRock uh, Chief Executive Officer Larry Fink, and BlackRock is an enormous uh, organization that uh, I guess is um, – I don't know how you put it. They they own other businesses. They run other businesses. Is that is – that... They own them. Yeah, they, they own are, They are capitalists. They invest their enormous assets – I think they're the biggest such company in the world um, – in uh, other companies. And – Think took the quite remarkable step of writing to the chief executives of the 500 biggest companies in America, saying, um, "You, we really need you to think not just about profits. Obviously, they have to make profits; otherwise, they'll go out of business." Right. But what he's saying is, you also pay attention. Should also pay attention to uh, social needs and social issues 
if you want us to keep investing or start investing in your companies. Mm. And this this was a real waker-upper, I mean, uh, because for quite a time, other big investors uh, were saying to companies, hey, what we really care about is your bottom line and what your stock price is going to look like three months from now. And in the past year or two, quite a lot of CEOs have lost their jobs because uh, that kind of investor uh, essentially got them pushed out if the stock prices didn't measure up to those capitalist uh, expectations. Right. So Mr. Fink's letter was a real game changer. It's actually that that to me that's that's pretty exciting. Um, is there a line that we draw between, um, I guess, being socially uh, conscientious and and helpful to society versus political? Because it also seems like simultaneously you we don't want our companies to be just jumping in on every political issue. That's right, and of course um, we are getting a lot of that. What's interesting, of course, is. In, at the beginning of the current administration, uh, a lot of companies signed on in various ways to uh, uh, associations or whatever uh, the new president put together, but then when they got disenchanted, they dropped out of right. those associations. However, it is certainly true that no matter who is president – Companies are spending a lot more money lobbying than they ever used to. So they, quite apart from the characteristics of this particular presidency, they have been getting increasingly involved in trying to affect uh, policies in the political environment in mm. this country. Is it's got to be expensive. And, I mean, you, you were an executive at General Motors, plus all of your experience studying all of this. Um, it is an expensive venture. Is it – in the end, is it, is it too cost prohibitive to get involved or, or, or can you do both? Can you make money and no, be socially well, responsible? a lot of companies find that it does pay off. I mean, certainly um, if you look at, for instance, the – most, in some ways, most notable action of the president with respect to businesses, which is the uh, aluminum and steel tariffs. Right. Companies were spending a lot of money on both sides of the issue because companies that make steel and aluminum wanted the tariffs and companies that use steel and aluminum didn't want them. And um, clearly, uh, together with President Trump's own proclivities, um, that lobbying had had some effect. Now, when I was a GM, and I've been gone for quite a while now, we had a sort of unwritten rule that we lobbied only on issues that directly affected the company. And we did not get involved in uh, more general uh, social issues. Mm. Now, I don't know to what extent companies are still following that rule. Uh, some of them, of course, get involved in 
social issues because it also has some impact on their business. Can you give us examples of companies that are succeeding in this social responsibility? In the social responsibility area? Yeah. Well, um, a lot of companies certainly have taken steps in that direction. You have to define what you mean by succeeding. But uh, one of the real groundbreakers was when Nike, the athletic shoemaker, was challenged by NGOs to take some responsibility for the way their independent suppliers in other countries treated their workers. Mm. And Nike's first reaction was, well, how can we take responsibility for that? They are not our companies. And eventually Nike came around, and so by now have many other companies, uh, to recognize that they have some responsibility for how workers are treated in their supplier companies in other countries. And uh, the situation is by no means perfect, but now the arguments are more about, well, are they really monitoring them effectively, and are they really taking steps to uh, force them to improve conditions, Mm. which is a long way forward from saying, that's not our turf don't bother us about that. Yeah, stay out of that. We're, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Marina Whitman. Marina is a professor of business administration and public policy at the University of Michigan, also author of the book uh, New World, New Rules, The Changing Role of the American Corporation, uh, which was published by Harvard Business School Press. And uh, Marina, one of the things I wonder is it seems like after World War II when uh, a lot of these companies – were rebounding and and wealthier. It was easier to be socially conscientious. Um, then we, you know, companies have taken a dip, so we focus more on you know sh- shareholder results. And if we get rich again, I guess we go back to social responsibility. Is it just a is it just a bouncing ball that's just going and, to keep bouncing? And let me say, by the way, that companies have gotten rich again. Okay, uh, profits are at some kind of all-time high, and they are now in a position again to uh, pay attention to other measures as well. Um, In general, I think um, that companies do, uh, as I say, they in a way have to place profitability first, because if they don't, they'll won't be around it much longer. Right. I mean, look at what seems to have happened to Toys R Us, and if anybody said that five years ago, people would have been absolutely astounded when the lines went out the door. That's so true. Um, but then uh, when companies do have uh, high profits, they can then turn to uh, other issues, but that doesn't happen automatically. That is, uh, you might say in uh, academic terms, it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition. That is, uh, the other side of it is that companies have been heavily prodded, if you like, as uh, our citizens in general have become more conscious of things like environmental issues, or or worker conditions in other countries, uh, neither of which uh, were on the radar, so to speak, a few decades ago. 
Do you um, do you sense that the policy, like the, the tax policy that President Trump just instituted, seems like that's going to make some companies more money and at least allow them to move their money uh, more freely in certain ways? Does is, it seems like uh, our government could also incentivize corporations to be more socially involved, and that might create, it seems like, more support. Um, I mean, so so all benefits don't just come from corporate or don't just come from government. It would spread out some of the social responsibility to other parts of our country. It would, but as you know, uh, a lot of what we call socially responsible activity is, it, it, certainly with respect to this administration, quite controversial. Yeah. Um, you know, you have an administration that uh, is a skeptic on climate science, so you wouldn't expect it to encourage companies to do things for the environment. Um, so that it's not simple. And the problem is that if governments did that, it would embed them even more in the controversial social issues of our time. Goodness knows they're embedded enough already. Yeah. And and I think that would be a constraint. Do you – it seems like a, a, an obvious way that companies could be more socially responsible is just in their own neighborhood where – I mean I think of – What's happened to the Rust Belt and how many companies benefited from the Rust Belt forever? And it seems like these organizations could play an enormous role just more in maybe local growth or redevelopment or change than they are. Is, is, that, is that where they could take this versus taking on global issues? Well, of course, the problem is that when companies downsize or leave the Rust Belt, which is the situation you're talking about, uh, usually they're not in very good shape themselves either. True. Uh, companies that are flying high are less likely to uh, move out. Although, of course, uh, companies, and particularly for a while, this is maybe a little less true now, uh, did tend to go abroad in search of lower labor costs. Um, in order to stay competitive or to improve their profit picture. Mm. But um, I know when I was at GM and in in the 80s when the American auto industry was going downhill at a rapid rate um, was the time when all the plant closings were going on. Yeah. And in my particular job, I had... I was in charge of a group of staff called Public Affairs, and uh, I had no say in which plants closed or or when. But I did persuade the top management, for instance, uh, instead of cutting off all United Way contributions when they closed a plant, because normally their contributions were relative to the size of their employment in a uh, Location and obviously when they closed the plant, yeah, uh, the employment went down. And I did persuade them instead of simply stopping the, their United Way contributions cold turkey, they should phase them down over time to make the shock a little less. 
Yeah. So that was kind of a, a small, marginal improvement in uh, their social behavior. Yeah. But uh, usually that's often that's not a great time to expect them to uh, expand. Yeah, to socially. jump on. Um, so, Marina, as we wrap this up, what uh, j- just give us overall, does the future look good as far as corporate America doing more to give back? And what can we do just as average folks, maybe even employees of companies to or just consumers to to maybe gently push our corporations to be more socially responsible? Yes. What was the first half of your question again? Do you feel overall? Do you feel like there's a, po- a positive future as far as social responsibility? Oh, yes. Well, again, it depends uh, to some extent on how long this expansion, economic expansion, keeps going. Uh, you know, everybody says, "Well, there's a Russian uh, recession coming sometime, but we don't know when." And again, if we go into recession, that will tend to pull back the reins on. Uh, socially oriented activities. But the simple fact is that there's no question that the American public in general and customers and workers in particular have become much more conscious of social issues, particularly environmental issues, which have only been on the radar really for the for a few decades. Right. And that that will place a kind of floor on uh, companies' uh, socially oriented activities, either positively or negatively, um, and and I think that will remain. But the state of the business cycle and therefore of companies' profitability will also play a role. Hmm. And you think going forward, uh, what can we do to put to put gentle pressure or to keep? to keep uh, the companies knowing they need to stay socially responsible? Well, um, of course, partly is how we make our consumer choices and uh, whether we are willing to pay a little more to encourage companies to be socially uh, oriented. You know, there are things like fair trade coffee and, and so forth. Um, and the other is, I suppose, just keep up the general drumbeat on uh, the importance of uh, social concerns and hopefully not get mired in controversy over some of them uh, and keep reminding companies and the public in general, I mean, in a sense, it's the public talking to itself, uh, that we do care. Yeah, such 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 great advice, Marina. Thank you so much for your time, your and your insight. Again, Dr. Marina Whitman is a professor of business administration and public policy at the University of Michigan, and uh, also the author of Corporate America Needs to Get Back to Thinking About More Than Just Profits. You can find that on theconversation.com. Doing what we can to uh, to learn and to help us all be the be the good in the world. We'll continue the journey. A little coach's corner straight ahead. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, there's a lot of uh, interesting pressure and insight that uh, I think we could give corporate America by being a little bit more socially active, perhaps. Um, I, again, I'm not I'm not big in protesting and I'm not big in scaring him, you know, companies that we're going to not do any work with you anymore because you whatever, whatever. But we've seen recently even organizations like Walmart who pulled away uh, some or changed some of their gun sales and their policies on gun on selling guns and ages, certain ages that wouldn't be able to buy a gun at uh, Dick's Sporting Goods and Walmart. I mean, that's I think that's smart, right? It's smart business. But again, it impacts because there are people now that are mad at Walmart that won't go in and buy their gear before they go camping because Walmart has taken such a stand. But um, there there are some things that uh, I think we can take too far. And one of the 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 areas that I, I really – I don't know what it is, but I think doing this show um, and talking about a lot of things that – that that are hard, that are difficult topics, or frustrating to uh, to people out there. I've I've started to feel a little bit of um, the frustration that that each and every one of us can have every day, trying to deal with topics and issues that are exhausting topics and issues that really just slowly, I don't know, take the wind out of our sails. And so I wanted to figure out if there was a way that we could somehow be better, try harder. And so I put together some rules that we that I, I want to follow uh, to not be so toxic socially. And I've, there's about five different, uh, I, I call them habits, toxic habits, that are stressing us out as a society. The first is overall all of us, by the way, not just corporate America and not just our president, all of us have this weird obsession of focusing on the me, not the we. We um, we don't even believe in our institutions anymore. We don't believe in our government anymore. We don't believe in corporations. We don't believe in universities. Every one of these these supposed institutions, religion, we're starting to pull away from and feel like we don't even need this uh this these institutions the, those institutions used to create the we in this country and now it seems like we're very focused on the me or the individual and again i get it every corporation every organization every religion everybody can can also you know lose their vision and lose their their sight about the the individual but we got to be careful about that another uh another habit that i think a lot of us have taken on is that we're so easily offended I don't know what it is, and maybe it's simply we don't have the protections we used to. We, we've we got a lot more information than ever, but everybody has a chip on their shoulder. Everybody has, you know, a grudge, something that they're mad about and something that kind of their pet peeve that the minute that thing is played, you play that, and it might be guns, it might be whatever, but we have the pet peeve. We got to watch out and start maybe, instead of being so easily offended, just recognize there is another side to every story. And uh, it might be good that you at least learn the other side um, and and figure out why you really are so reactive to an idea. And it doesn't matter what it is. It could be anything that you're reacting to with really strong reaction. Remember, that says so much more about you than anything else. Also, we have another habit that I think is kind of toxic is the fact that we all have an opinion about everything. (laughs) 
And the funny thing about our opinions, we feel really strong about something, and a lot of us don't know anything about it. You can have a really strong opinion and still be just grossly misinformed. All of us. I'm not saying you. I'm saying me, all of us. But be careful when you're really opinionated about something. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to people talk about their opinion, and all they knew were the talking points that came from that one side of the argument. They hadn't even studied the argument. And I think part of it is because we all can watch television and radio, and we have all of these people, even we on the show, we have opinions, and we're not informed on everything we have an opinion about, right? We're not. Um, But when we sometimes, the people that we're watching on TV, they actually are informed. They actually have read some of them, by the way, not all of them, let's be real. But they, they have a little bit more informed opinions. Um, some, by the way, are just biased and informed to one side of the opinion. But be careful having an opinion that's not, that's, that's not balanced, not that you have to believe it in a balanced way, but you have to have at least studied the issue in a balanced way to really have a meaningful opinion, I believe. So be careful. Slow down. Sometimes bite your lip. It might be better. Also, blaming others for our misery. We're, we're big into having someone else to blame for why our life is a mess. Be careful, folks. The minute we keep blaming everyone else for our misery, it just makes us all miserable. In fact, we all have to stay miserable just to stay the victim, right? Just some habits. Habits, toxic habits, if we're not careful, that will stress us all out. And uh, if, if you notice you have any of those habits, just know that people around you might be feeling some stress because of it. This is The Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you love stronger and lead healthier, happier lives. Welcome back, friends, uh, to the Matt Townsend Show. Again, of course, Terry spends all night researching. Many, you know, just go home to their family. Not Terry. Terry uh, constantly researching. <laughs> I'll see him on the weekend. Yeah, <laughs> see him on the weekend. A Japanese company used 50 engineers to design and build a near-flawless fidget spinner. Why? <gasps> took them six months. They set a Guinness World Record. Really? The new fidget spinner. Yeah. It spun for 24 minutes. In 46 seconds. Wow. Whoa. That is a good spin. That is a great spin. Uh, again, hours of time, research, no, not energy. Sure, not sure if they held it on a finger mm. or if they had some sort of base of some kind. You probably want spun. a base that's not moving very much. Because... Does that affect the world record? I'm not yeah. sure. That's, so that is the world record time, 24 minutes on a spin. In 46 seconds. Almost 25 minutes. Just put no. it on Dr. Matt's desk. Not a lot of activity going on no, there. Nothing's it's all in. under the desk. That's where he takes That's his nap. That's where I take my nap. 50 engineers. Wow. All other problems I mean, are we, solved. We, you know what? We could cure cancer. Could. Or we could get a fidget spinner to fit, spin for 25 minutes. Ah, Doing what we can, folks, to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, along with Jeff and Terry, gathered, been researching all night, all of us, 
to bring you the latest, the greatest insights and information you need to live a healthier, happier life. Today, by the way, we will be reviewing the book Talent Magnet, How to Attract and Keep the Best People. Hmm, That's a hard thing for an organization to attract good people, let alone keep good people. Yeah, what's in it for me? What have you done for me lately? Yeah, it's a great question. I uh, was just asking you. Oh, oh that you was a separate that. Oh, thing. I thought you were like doing like, oh. No. Yeah, no. Uh, we haven't done much for you lately, Jeff. <laughs> but it doesn't mean we can't. Hey, um, interesting stuff going on around the globe. Um, of course, we, at this juncture, we've got to tell you to watch out today. Beware Ooh, yeah. the Ides of March. Caesar must die. Caesar must die. I don't know why you keep saying that. I don't keep saying it. Who said that? Count Olaf keeps saying that. Was that Count Olaf? Yes. Uh, beware the Ides of March. March 15th. And this March I love. It does come in like a lion, out like a lamb. And it stings like a butterfly, floats like a bee, or just inverse that. Invert that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and uh, But it did sting. Let's be real. There's a story in the news today. Toys R Us has been stung. No. It's going out of business. <sighs> I, I got to say I'm not surprised, though. But it's crazy. This was this... This incredibly large success and all of a sudden little thing like Walmart starts to chip away. Target starts to chip away. And then Amazon comes in. Boom. And eats its lunch. And so they're closing stores all around the country. After 70 years in business, it's going to close or sell all of its U.S. stores. Including Babies R Us. They're, it's got to be. Yeah. They're throwing the baby out. There's one. There's a location. With the bathwater. The closest location to me of babies are us we we go over there because they have this uh what they have this promotion where you can bring in old children's like uh high chairs or car seats that kind of thing and then mm. they'll take it and they'll take you'll give you like 20 percent, and you can apply that to an upgrade they're, right. they're trying to make things safer yeah and we go in there and oh they're having a 50 percent off everything must go ask us about our shelves type Uh-oh. of sale i'm like oh that's weird <laughs> Wow. Not only that, but they're like the only store with the expectant mother parking. Oh, right. That's yeah. going to go, too. No more stork parking. <sighs> but you know what? We could we could, inst- we could institute that everywhere. Well, yeah. And I think if you're going to have an expected mother, why not have it? I mean, if we're going to be fair. Expected father? An expected father. If, if a father's expecting, maybe he should be able to park. Maybe like two rows back. Okay. And like, why would he need to park up front? He doesn't have any sort of. He's got more worries. He's got more stress. There should be parking with uh, not not necessarily just single fathers, but fathers who are in charge of the kids for the afternoon, mm. and he has no help. True. Like me at the movies yesterday yeah. with my kids. True. Yeah. You've only got two hands, but three kids. How do you do it? What about expected grandparents? Maybe they could be back a few more rows. Like they're expected to Like, no, like graduate. I'm expecting twins. Well, your daughter is. Kind of a technical way to look at oh, it. Oh, I see what you mean. It's not you. But, uh, I thought yeah. grandparents that were pregnant, but that's no, that, just not that's going to happen. That's a whole other Jerry Springer show. Yeah. At the time um, <laughs> of its bankruptcy, uh, Toys R Us is going to close 100, no, 1,697 stores. See, that's another byproduct of this. That's mm. a lot of real estate. Yeah. That's about 30,000 jobs. They're big stores. 
They're huge stores, and, and no one's going. Meaning the physical no, building. These right? are hard buildings to get other companies into. There's only so many of these these gyms Big that box, will come yeah. flying in and do some sort of fitness center or something. So this could actually also, you know, hurt and and impact certain malls, certain locations that you lose the big box name and boom, you've lost three or four other tenants. So it's a a big deal. And the trend now is you knock it down and then you build like 40 like small little shops in the parking lot and make it into some little town hall thing. Mm -hmm. And call it a villa or the village. Yeah. And something in there selling crepes. That's what you do. Why can't they kick these businesses out uh, why can't they wait until the next business is ready to go? Boom. For instance, we lost our dollar theater here in Provo. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's still standing. They haven't even knocked it down. This was like a year ago it closed down. Why, why are I you could in have been enjoying, not, but maybe someone wants the building. I could have been enjoying dollar movies for a year. But, it's but, just sitting there. Well, you understand that they were out of business. They weren't making enough money to keep the no, doors No, no, open. no, no, no. They were bought out. Yeah, but – I know, so it was a financial like, so they needed to move you to somewhere. But else. nothing is being done with that location. That's not the the point. The point they're not making money. They close the doors. It's, what it's happens cap- to no, real estate I, is something I, else. I don't think you two understand what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. By me, my <laughs> house, the Dollar Theater closed down, and then it took about a year. But then the steakhouse across the street. Mm-hmm. Another exact location of that steakhouse built across the street. So for about three weeks, there's two of the exact same steakhouse. What? Yeah, but that makes sense. And we're like, what's going on? Then they closed down the old version of the steakhouse, moved to the new version of the yeah. steakhouse, and now the old version of the steakhouse, which has one purpose. The building is built. It's a theme restaurant, right? So it has one purpose. It looks like this type of steakhouse. Yeah. The only thing you could possibly do is knock it down, but it's just sitting there. Well, plus it's it smells like steak. And it smells like steak. You know what they're going to do? They're going to turn it back into a dollar theater. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's it sounds like the there. dollar theater uh, model's not working. Maybe no. it needs to be the $3 theater. Uh, the $5 theater. Yeah, just up the quality of the dollar. Yeah, that's what you got to do. There you go. Or maybe just call it uh, a pound and a half. <laughs> a pound and a half. <laughs> theater. Hey, let's uh, get to the headlines, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? Republicans are eyeing recount hopes as about 600 votes separate uh, Democrat Connor Lamb and Republican Rick Saccone in Pennsylvania's special election that happened on Tuesday. Lamb has declared victory, but uh, there are still some ballots outstanding. Absentee votes counted from uh, different counties put the difference between the two candidates at 627 votes. Wow, that was close. Saccone isn't yielding the race as of yet, even as pundits are saying it would be nearly impossible for him to win based on the number of absentee and provisional ballots remaining. You know, math. Yeah. Eh. What are you going to do? A source familiar with the situation says that all four counties have complied with a request to impound their voting machines and ballots so they can be reviewed. The vote tallies must be certified before Saccone's campaign can call for a recount, but the source called the recount probable at this point. Wow. Of course, you've got to get a recount. You just spend... It's that close. Right. Might as well. Why not? It is is interesting when they tell you it's impossible and you're like, we're going to do it anyways. We're still (laughs) fighting. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky pledged Wednesday to oppose uh, President Donald Trump's nominees to head up the State Department and the CIA, complicating their path to confirmation in the Senate. The libertarian senator said he was perplexed that Trump would nominate Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State, given his support for regime change in Iraq and 
His uh, choice of Gina Haspel to be the next CIA director, given her participation in the agency's infamous torture program. Really? I find it just amazing that anyone would consider having this woman as the head of the CIA, Paul said after reading Haspel's gleeful statement about the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques. There's some <laughs> documents that'll come out. Yeah. Certainly there is a career officer at the CIA who didn't directly participate in waterboarding that we can nominate, uh, he added. Rewarding someone who was in charge of something so heinous is a really big mistake. Paul, who sits on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, did not rule out a filibuster to prevent Pompeo from being confirmed as Secretary wow. of State. This is fun. Yeah, government. Isn't government fun? I love the whole waterboarding part, but that's what the government told her to do, right? Right. So should she be held accountable for that? I mean, it's bad. It's, it's bad. not something people want to support, but she was working as directed, which is her job. Well, yeah, and it may not be a bad skill to have in government. Right. The details of it are pretty bad. Yeah. No, they're horrible. Right. Because you're, 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 there was one person, one uh, detainee, they waterboarded like 83 times in a oh, month or something. Man. Just horrible things, but she was doing her job, too. So I yeah. don't know where you, you know, do you oh, go back oh, and oh, retroactively? Get... Do you punish her in, from past mistakes that way that she was following her? I don't know. We'll have to see. She didn't invent the the process. She might have perfected it, though. After last month's school shooting in Parkland, Florida, that killed 17 people, President Donald Trump called for a ban on so-called bump stock devices that he said turned legal weapons into machine guns. But at the same time, his administration is quietly pushing for millions more to allow the millions more to allow the federal government to speed up approvals for the sale and transfer of actual machine guns. Oh. It is billed as part of Trump's and the Trump administration's strategy to reduce violent crime, although officials can't say how, and it's tucked into the Justice Department's fiscal 2019 year budget request. The uh, Senate Judiciary Committee's top Democrat, Dianne Feinstein, calls making approvals for machine gun purchases a priority unconscionable. Mm. The money for the D- Trump DOJ wants to spend $13 million. It would go towards addressing workload and reduce the backlog of applications under the Federal National Firearms Act. So they're trying to speed up the process. People get their guns approved. Huh. Seems, After they said they... Well, yeah, it seems like, it seems like they, they were going to do something else yeah. a while ago. Just the question there. So we'll see if that ever gets addressed. Okay. Nearly a dozen men have been arrested in a cargo theft trafficking ring that used stolen tractor trailers to move more than $1 million in goods meant for retailers across the country to a New Jersey warehouse where they were held until they could be sold domestically or overseas. The five-month investigation dubbed Operation Botany Strike. Come again? Uh, they got to get a better name than that. That was part of why I picked this. Botany Strike. Yeah, I, uh, it began October 14th. Yeah. Uh, detectives from New Jersey, uh, State Police, Interstate Theft, North Unit. That's kind of a tough name to have for a unit. Maybe sure. you know, trim that down a little bit. Began looking into a theft of a tractor trailer which contained $104,000 worth of meat. Hmm? Wow. That's so. Shouldn't it be called uh, biology, not botany? Botany. I'm not sure why the botany strike. How about the hick heist? The hick heist could. I don't know. It's it, but 104 thousand dollars worth of meat. That's yeah. a lot of money. How about the carnivore con? Troopers found <laughs> that the abandoned tractor trailer related that day at a freeway rest area on the New Jersey Turnpike, which is, of course, where you find stuff like that. Sure. Uh, leads led ultimately to uncover the organized theft ring. Ultimately, 16 loads of stolen cargo were recovered from 10 national tr- uh, retailers. The seized cargo ranged from clothing and granite 
to home goods. So it just says a little bit of everything. Granite, so it's like countertops, right? Yeah. Landscaping equipment, food products. Basically, if they if it was not nailed down and they get their hands on it, they would <laughs> steal it and then try to sell it. Wow. Including one hundred four thousand dollars worth of meat. I mean, it's like going into you don't know what you're going to get any day, but you it's like a box get, of chocolates. You could get like a box of chocolates. You can get meat one day. I'll have a slab of granite and. <laughs> Some of the meat. Some yard equipment. And yeah. yeah. Finally, a consumer alert. <gasps> what? If you're going to China. Oh, no. This would be careful. So as Chinese police are expanding the use of a futuristic recognition tech powered by a system dubbed Skynet to track a database of blacklisted individuals. Really? This version of the tool for law enforcement and security that has been tested out for added security at two sessions of China's parliament this year, uh, officers wear augmented reality smart glasses that recognize facial features and license and license plates near in near real time, checking them against a database of suspects. So as they look around the the augmented reality glasses, the computers just grab onto a face and then they'll tell you who it is if they're in the database. Wow. If they're not, they take a picture picture, and then they try to figure out who that person is. Man. And then track that. Or they have, like, you can look at a license plate and it'll search the database and tell you who that person is. That's kind of scary. The specs look an awful like like the much derided Google Glass product, if you remember that. Oh, yeah. They even go by the name of GLXSS. Glixes. 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 Human Rights Watch has uh, the issue about, they're calling it the police cloud. Which is kind of ominous. Yeah, that is. It said it's. This is from Human Human Rights Watch. It says it's frightening that Chinese authorities are collecting and centralizing ever more information about hundreds of millions of ordinary people, identifying persons who deviate from what they determine to be normal thought, and then surveilling them. People that deviate from normal thought. Yes. Sounds like Jeff. Hmm. Huh. It's daily. You better watch out. You're not going to China, are you? No, but I've been to China. Have you? Yeah. So they already know. So they, so your name's in the database. He's in the police cloud. <laughs> Skynet you, is watching. When did you go to China? Oh, back in uh, 2012. Oh, the year of the dragon. I guess. Was it? I, don't know. I could oh. be in their databases because uh, when you go up the, uh, to see the, wall of, the Great Wall of China, you have the option to pay a little more and ride a little toboggan on the way down on these little chutes. So much fun. We did it. But the whole time, they were telling me, slow down, slow down, because I was going way too fast. So I can't be sure, but I'm pretty sure some camera flashes were going off. Oh, that's pretty funny. Um, So I could very well be in their database. Yeah. I I would bet on it. (laughs) You're known as the toboggan guy. So let me get this straight. The Great Wall of China also has... A slide. A slide on it. That you can go down. It's awesome. It's oh, the, it sounds like You it. have like a lever that that can control the speed of your toboggan, and I just – I had it down the whole time. You were just pedal to the – Oh, yeah. Chinese mm. metal. <laughs> it's that cheap still they keep dumping on the market. Yeah. Maddening. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> Isn't it fun what we learn about Jeff in the show every every day? Yeah. Something new. I came back with quite a few movies too. Okay, I wouldn't bring that up. <laughs> let's uh, let's get uh, let's get to the headlines, Jeffrey. What what uh, empty news do you have for us? Well, Terry mentioned a, a Guinness 
record holder earlier in the show. Yeah. And I'll mention another. What? Who? Do you frequent McDonald's? Yes. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Why do you seem and surprised? You well, you don't have any kids that are under the age of... What do kids have to do with this? You don't okay. think you get this physique that I'm sporting by not visiting I'm, certain restaurants. I'm not surprised. Not, I'm not, what? Not about your physique, but I'm not surprised that you would go there at your age. Because what? here is a 44-year-old at your age. Actually, he's more than 44, but for the past 44 years, yeah. this guy has been eating at McDonald's every day. And how he old was, is he? Uh, it doesn't say here, but he's been going for the past 44 years. He was featured in the movie Supersize Me. Yeah. And he currently holds the Guinness World Record for most Big Macs eaten. boy. And he's about to pass another milestone. He's about to eat his 30,000th 30, Big Mac. What a guy. Yeah. Uh, just to, let me give you some... Uh, Perspective on how often yeah, he goes. Yeah. Okay. So he typically eats 14 Big Macs each week or mm. two a day, if you will. That's and, a lot uh, of Big Macs. He'll purchase them in bulk and then microwave them at home because there's, if there's anything that makes the Big Mac even tastier, it's <laughs> microwaving it at home. But he, well, it's, he's found what he likes. He's found that thing he likes. True. Then, you but know. you look at this guy – He's not overweight. He's not no. obese. Right. He's His name is Don Gorski. And I think it kind of goes back to what Terry was saying, how there are a lot of people that will just eat at McDonald's on a daily basis. Oh, sure. They actually lose weight. Oh, yeah. I mean, they stay within it's about, a certain caloric it's about intake. Calories, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Big Macs account for 90 to 95% of his diet. <laughs> In the 44 years he's been going, yeah. there have only been... Uh, there's been a total of eight times that he's gone a day without eating a Big Mac oh. in 44 years. That's a lot of special sauce. <laughs> That's a lot of carbs. That is. It's a lot of lettuce. Two all-beef patties. That's true. I mean, he's he's it's getting... Really, it's more bun than anything else. Hey. Because it's like a bun and a half in there. No, you got your veggies, your special... I mean, your your lettuce, your che- or your pickles, onions... You got your seeds on a sesame seed bun. You got everything you need. And two all-beef patties. Not half beef, not partial beef. All-beef patties. Thank you for educating us and bringing us up to speed on this burger that's been around for decades. By the way, they now, just if you want to take it to another level, they have like the, I don't know what they call it, but the Big Big Mac, the Grande or whatever. Yeah. By the way, I just... Got off the phone with McDonald's. The check is on the way. Thank you. Yeah. This segment brought to you by McDonald's. Uh, do we have time for one more? No. Okay. But we will at the end of the show. <laughs> so make sure you stick around because Jeff's got more empty news. I'm sure we'll be talking about Burger King next. Actually, next we're going to be talking about Talent uh, Magnet, the book, How to Attract and Keep the Best People with uh, Mark Miller. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, more than vision, strategy, creativity, marketing, finance, or even technology, it is ultimately people 
that determine organizational success. That's why virtually every organization wants more top talent. But do you know what they are looking for? And uh, do does do organizations actually know how to keep their talent um, in the organization? It uh, our guest today is the author of the book, the new book, Talent Magnet. Mark Miller is his name, and Mark is the vice president of organizational effectiveness at Chick Fil A. He began his career at Chick Fil A, um, working as an hourly team member way back in 1977, and now he's uh, he's a leader and the author of the book. Um, uh, talent magnet, also a uh, best-selling author of Leaders Made Here and Chess Not Checkers. Mark Miller, thank you for being with us today. Great to be with you, Matt. Thanks for the opportunity. You bet. This is it's. It seems like now more than ever, uh, organizations have got to make sure they're focused in on not not just finding the top talent, but getting the top talent and then keeping them. How? What grade overall do you give corporations in their ability to do this today? Well, I think I think it's all over the board, and I think even within some organizations, you'll see uh, a wide array of performance. Some departments, some functions, some leaders who are better at attracting top talent than others. I think that's one reason it's uh, a topic of interest. Is there's so much inconsistency out there? Yeah. Is it? Is it? Um... Because we've talked a lot on the show about disengagement and how employees are kind of – many are bored with their jobs. They're not being pushed hard enough uh, or compensated in certain ways. What is it that, that makes it so hard to keep these top performers and top talent in the organization? Well, well, first, let me say that I think the engagement level of the American workforce is not an indictment on the worker. It's an indictment on leadership. Mm-hmm. And leaders create the conditions and the context and the cultures uh, in which people either engage or disengage. I think one reason, to your question specifically, one reason it's so hard is most leaders don't know what it takes to attract and keep top talent. And that was the question that we set out to answer a couple years ago. Um, and interestingly enough, we thought we would just go out and buy some research. And I started by calling Gallup, and then I called Aon and other uh, thought leaders, called Marcus Buckingham, and mm-hmm. I heard over and over and over again that no one had ever done the research to figure out what attracts top talent. So we commissioned it ourselves. If if we want to attract them and we want to keep them, it just felt obvious to us that we needed to figure out what is it they're looking for. And that was that was the genesis for this project. Okay, give us some insight. What 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 are they looking for? What did you find out? Well, I think the good news, I'll say I'll say first, I think there's really good news for organizations all across America. Uh, this is not out of reach. They really only want three things. They want a better boss. Now, you might think, well, doesn't everybody want a better boss? Well, <laughs> interestingly, everyone might say they do, but top talent really cares about the caliber of the leadership they are serving under. Yeah. It's actually a condition of employment. Typical talent, those that aren't quite as, as good, they may say they want a better boss, but they'll work for anybody. Hmm. Top talent wants a better boss. Second thing they want is a brighter future. Well, again, you might say, doesn't everybody want a brighter future? Well, perhaps at some level, 
But one of the things we discovered is that top talent has much more of a future orientation than typical talent. So the truth is many of the workers that we might engage aren't thinking about the future, Mm. but the top talent is. And they realize that they're probably not going to work in one job or one career, um, you know, for, for decades. And so they're asking a different set of questions when they walk into an interview, when they consider an opportunity. They're asking things such as, how will I grow? How will I be stretched? What opportunities will I have? They're even asking, whether they articulate this or not, they're asking at some level, will this job or this role make me more employable in the future? Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. There is a difference between the top and the typical talent, and you could actually end up creating your organization to really just foster typical talent. Absolutely. You could you could you could design it for the middle of the curve, and you'll have a hard time keeping the brightest and the best, and not even know it because you know you got good people. They're good. They're and we're getting right. results. You're just not right. retaining the 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 ones that'll that'll take it to the next level. Yeah, and let me say when when we talk about top talent, it, it's a, it's a bit elusive, and and you could easily argue that top talent in one job or one role or one organization is different. Yeah. And that same person in a different organization. So here's how I help people get their head around it. I said, think about your very best employee, not, not your best leader, not your best manager, but your best employee, the one that consistently performs. They add value. They contribute. They're, they're passionate. They're engaged. That's who this book was studying. Hmm. That's it. That's it. So it may look a little different if you're running an engineering firm versus running a nonprofit. I mean, I got that, but everybody's got that employee. Right. And, and you're so saying how do, you, the three, how do you get more of them? The three things they wanted uh, in your research was the better boss, the brighter future. What was the and third? third? They want a bigger vision. Yeah. And this, you know, if before the research, I, I worked really hard to keep an open mind, but, but if you pressed me, I would have probably said there's going to be something about leadership and there's going to be something about personal growth, which covered the first two. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would have said bigger vision. Now, in retrospect, it's not a surprise. Again, these men and women that we spent time with over the last few years, both quantitative and qualitative research, hundreds of interviews, um, 38 states, for interviews, we did the research covered all 50 states, ages 14 to 65. I mean, so it was it was very rigorous, yeah. multi-dimensional research plan. But but what we learned about them is they want to make a difference in the world, and they want to be part of organizations that are making a difference. Now that doesn't mean that they have to work for a nonprofit or you know a faith-based or charity. Uh, they want they want organizations that are socially responsible. They want to be part of corporations and, and entities that give back. Hmm. They care more about mission, vision, and values than their typical talent counterparts, which makes sense. They're yeah. looking for a place with for some personal resonance. 
it's like, yeah, I, I, I know we're trying to make a profit. And, you know, in most organizations, that is the goal. And as our founder here at Chick-fil-A used to say, there's no mission without margin. Yeah, no. We unapologetically, yeah. we want to we earn a, a fair return. But these people go, what, what are you doing with the return? And is this an organization that I can be proud to be part of? Right. So those are the three things they're looking for. Now, I will tell you there was one big surprise What in the research. And I call it an indirect finding. Because once we identified these, these three uh, elements that these folks are looking for, I began talking to leaders about these three things. And I encountered numerous leaders who told me that I was wrong. And I said, well, I've been <laughs> wrong before, but we, we, we just spent a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money. Uh, we, we, we feel really good about the data. What do you mean? I'm wrong. And they said, we are providing a better boss, a brighter future, and a bigger vision, and we can't attract top talent. Hmm. Well, that that piqued my interest. Yeah. And so we started trying to figure out how could that be true. And what we discovered is there is actually a fourth element. If you want to create a talent magnet, you've got to do those three things, but there's a fourth element. You have to tell the story. And many organizations are doing the things we just discussed to, to some extent. Yeah. But they're failing miserably at telling the story. And you, you actually get no credit if you do those things, and people don't know that you do those things. Oh, interesting. You've got to get out to the people your vision that they're the brighter future and the better bosses. You got to get well, not that just out. To your people. No, I mean yeah, out to the world. Yeah, to, proactively to candidates. I had I had several leaders. They would say, "I tell that story all the time," and I'd say, "Well, how do you do that?" And they would say, "Well, I do it in orientation." <laughs> and I said, "Well, it's it's probably not hurting you, but it's not attracting yeah. top talent." You've already got them. You've already got yeah, the ones already, in orientation. And yeah. so that has been a fascinating revelation for a lot of leaders. Yeah, there's some things we can do to shore up this this promise, this value proposition, as some would call it. But we have to be thoughtful. We have to be proactive. We have to be strategic in telling the story. And for a lot of organizations, that's, that's what's going to make the difference. Again, we're talking with Mark Miller, who is the author of the book Talent Magnet, How to Attract and Keep the Best People. Again, Mark is the Vice President of Organizational Effectiveness at Chick-fil-A. Um, and again, you know what is interesting? Because Chick-fil-A is one of those companies you can tell is telling the story. I mean, their employees are happy. They're, you hear it. You feel it. You see it. Um you know about it. I just as somebody that follows organizational leadership a lot, and I had spent seven years with Franklin Covey and worked with Stephen Covey, and um, you guys ooze it, uh, part Mark. But part of it, I guess, is some companies almost it seems like feel like they don't have to do that because you know their name precedes them. Or but you're saying if if companies choose not to do this, or you, if you think you're doing it, but the employees actually aren't seeing it, 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 it doesn't matter. In the end, you will lose the talent. Well, 
people can think highly of a brand and people can think highly of an organization and still not want to work there. Yeah, true. This is what makes them want to work for. I mean, a, a, a strong, reputable brand, those are part of the basics. A fair wage, a safe place to work, adequate and appropriate training, those are foundational. What the research reveals is none of those are differentiators because typical talent wants all that as well. But people can admire a brand and not want to work there. Yeah, right. Top talent wants to work in places where they have high confidence. They'll have a better boss, they'll have a brighter future, and they'll be part of a bigger vision. We're actually trying to offer what they're interested in, what they have said they want. And when you do, you'll get more of them. And then you asked the question earlier about how do you keep these people? Yeah. Oh, well, you better deliver on the promise. If, if top talent shows up because they believe you and they find out that it wasn't true, they will leave. And they'll leave quickly because they'll, they are seeking the things we just talked about. Is do you see anything happening in this world where you now can? Um, it's easier to almost be self-employed. It's easier to almost just go be a consultant for these companies um, and and be more independent. You would think that many top talent would just choose to consult or choose to to not um, to not have to have a boss, but be their own boss. Well, I think there's there's a growing group, as, as you well know, of, of workers who have taken that path. But I know a lot of very talented people, and they, they like being part of a team. Yeah. They like being part of an organizational entity. And for some of them, and I don't want to be careful not to over, overstate this, but it actually goes back to that bigger vision piece, because as individuals, there are many things that we can do to add value to the world. But when you, when you link with an organization you, you might argue that your reach and your potential for impact increases. Yeah. There's only so much I can do by myself, but if I will, if I will associate myself with a larger entity, um, might make bigger ripples in the world. What would you suggest, Mark, to just the average uh, employee out there that that or not the average one, but one that feels like that they're they're a top talent and and they maybe are in an organization where they're not seeing this, but they also are in a position to influence it. How do we go about influencing our leaders to to become talent magnets? Well, I think I think if you can speak to the felt need, you know, there is a war for talent out there. That's not a new phrase. Uh, you may know, your listeners may know, McKinsey coined that back in '97, hmm. and we we tend to go of that as shifting demographics and employment or unemployment rates. And there's a lot of factors that contribute to the war for talent, but we are in it right now. We are in it, and it is getting harder and harder to, to staff organizations, period. Yeah. And so we felt like if we're going to put out the energy to, to compete in the war for talent, why not go after top talent. So I think if you're trying to influence in an organization, I think if you can align uh, strategies such as this with the felt need of the organization, particularly in this case, 
you're not talking about expending a tremendous amount of resources. Right. Sometimes it's just tweaking what you're already doing. It's positioning what you're already doing. It's telling the story of what you're already doing. So for many organizations, they're going to find this is a cost-effective way to raise the level of talent in your organization. So if I'm trying to influence within an organization, I'm going to say it meets a felt need at, at minimal incremental expense. Now, let me quickly add, if you're not paying competitive wages, if if you're not uh, providing uh, the basic training, if, if you're not meeting some of those non-negotiables, then you're not going to create a talent magnet anyway. True. So some organizations, they've got some cleanup work to do. But assuming you're doing those things, uh, this is just a very cost-effective way to meet a very real felt need in organizations all over the nation. So great. Such great insight. Mark, thank you so much for your time and uh, and just the research, really, um, this idea of better boss, brighter future, bigger vision, and telling the story so essential for all of us that feel you know disengaged or wanting more out of our companies. All of us could pick up uh, uh, those skills, those tools to make it a little bit better for all of us that uh, that we that work under you or that that are trying to to just give their best. Powerful stuff. We'll continue the journey, folks. Up next, little coach's corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Hey, when it comes to uh, talent management, remember, it's always about people management. These are all these are all relationships. And there's always going to be a relationship. Uh, measurement, as even as uh, he, Mark was taking us through his content um, from the Talent Magnet book, every one of these ideas he was talking about, a better boss, a brighter future, and a bigger vision, each one of those, and then, by the way, the ability to tell the story, those are all created through interaction. You know if you have a better boss by how you interact with them and how they interact with you. You know if you have a brighter future in your organization based on interaction, you know, based on it's not just the fact that you have a really good mission statement or a really great company party. It's about the fact that you know what your purpose is in this organization. You can see some light of day from where you are to where you want to be professionally. You can see that you're going to grow and be developed You can see that because of your experience in the organization, you are actually elevating your abilities in your game, which will only increase your ability to get a job tomorrow. That all, every one of those things happens through interaction with human beings. Those human beings are your coworkers, your bosses, your team meetings, your your leaders, your HR department. We're doing this all day long, constantly. Um, and so remember, as you're, this is still about human relationships. This is about creating um, understanding. I, I can't, uh, I, I, I can't give too many details, but I've sat in meetings recently with uh, with my clients, and as we were talking, the children didn't. It was a family meeting. The children didn't feel like their parents were listening, and the parents. Basically, we're like, oh, please, of course we're listening. 
And yet the kids sat there and they were eloquent children that were teaching, that were literally voicing in a way that I hadn't heard kids ever voice. They were sharing their feelings, their voices, and they were being very, very real and very upfront. They weren't hiding. They weren't fighting. They weren't flighting. They were just communicating. But the parents couldn't hear it. And the parents were so frustrated because the children were so um, not just conforming to what they want. And it was creating tension. And I, I sat there and I thought, boy, this this is this is a pretty typical argument issue that, you know, parents might have with their kids. Um, but the kids had also been hurt and it's really complicated and I can't give you too many details without giving a lot of detail. Anyway, in the end, it doesn't matter um, if we don't feel understood, it doesn't matter why the parents aren't understanding them. If the children don't feel understood by their parents, they're not going to change. They're not going to bend. And it doesn't matter why this this communication isn't working. Um, it doesn't matter in an organization. If an employee doesn't see the, the future of their organization – um, it doesn't matter who we can blame. A lot of times we think it's about who do we blame for that. It doesn't matter who to blame because if that employee doesn't see the future, um, then they don't see the future and you're going to pay for it. If they don't see the bigger vision of what the organization's trying to do, then they don't see it. If they don't have – if they don't see that their boss is engaged and, and really helping them fulfill their mission, it's not going to happen. So – we have to almost go the extra mile on this process. If you are a boss or if you're an employee, we have to make sure you're looking into your organization. What can you do to push your boss to be a better boss? What can you do to make sure you understand your future in the organization? And what can you do to actually connect into the bigger vision? So you have to be proactive as an employee and bosses need to be proactive as bosses to make sure that those needs are being met for their people. Because if they're not, it doesn't matter why it didn't happen. You're losing leverage. You're losing ground with the people that matter most. So it's just, it's basic business, right? It's business 101 and it's human relationships 101. Um, It's not enough to just keep losing talent. You can keep losing talent in your organization and, and chalk it up to whatever. But if you don't fix it, the actual talent problem, then it's just not going anywhere and it'll spiral. In, to one degree or another. It also, by the way, remember, it doesn't mean you can't get by because average talent many times is fine. That's why the enemy of the best is the good. Sometimes sometimes your organization might want to be real that we can't afford, we can't have the top talent. So let's just get really good with average talent or let's get really good with what we've got or what we can get. It doesn't have to be top 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 talent. And again, top talent's highly subjective, right? Anyway, we're all trying to work on it one way or another, but take more control of your own approach. Don't just sit back and hope that your boss and your company hand this all to you. Make sure you're proactively leading your life toward it. Good stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, uh, doing what we can to, to help you retain, keep, find, be the best talent in the world. Welcome back. 
to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, it's time to go to, uh, to Jeff to do a little empty news for us. Jeff, what should we be uh, focused on that we didn't even know we needed to know? So real quick, we didn't bring this up when we talked about the McDonald's story, the guy that set the record for most Big Macs ever eaten. Yeah, yeah. What would you eat if you could eat the same food every single day? Like fast food? Any food you want. Well, I would love a good salad every day. Really? Blue, with blue cheese. Okay, but realistically. But that's but that's a lot of work. <laughs> so easier for me would be like going to Chick-fil-A and get their grilled nuggets. Okay. I could eat those every day. I think I could eat fried rice every day. Could you really? Oh, yeah. Anything with rice, I could pretty much eat every day. Wow. Anyway, uh, listen to this. I, I think students on BYU's campus would love this. One way to get students to vote for a uh, a school bond measure, can you think of what it is? Promise them... Pizza. Promise them pizza? How about they won't have to take their final exams? Whoa. If they vote on this bond measure. That's what an email sent to students at Warren Central High School in Mississippi said. However, um, it turns out that the email was actually a mistake. <laughs> Oops. Well, high school kids can't vote. Well, the principal says that the email was sent in error. The Vicksburg Post reports a February 20th email asked the students to help pass a bond measure to renovate district schools. The email said those who vote in March are exempt from finals. Now, I'm curious. How does an email like that get sent in error? Did somebody draft it and then at the last second think, no, it's probably not the best idea? Yeah. How do you Something's accidentally weird. send an email like that? That's a little fishy. Yeah. It's a little fishy. And then uh, just to close things up, I, I want to ask your advice on something. Oh, okay. Does this mean that I don't uh, – what does this say about me when my daughter comes in in the morning, lays down on my side of the bed because I'm gone, and she turns to my wife and very sweetly and innocently asks – you know, I'm thinking she's going to say something like, why doesn't daddy ever get to have breakfast with us? Or why is yeah. daddy never here in the morning? No, no. What's she ask? She asks, why doesn't daddy ever have to clean his side of the bed? That's a good point. What does that say about me? Well, it says you're a very messy bedkeeper. Does I mean, but does that translate to other parts of my life? Oh, yes. Am I, is my life just a whole big hot mess right now? Yes. And your children know it. Really? That's what's even scarier. Well, how do I fool them into thinking that I've got everything under control? It's too late. They know. You thought you are. You thought you were fooling them, but they're no. They get it. They understand. Does that's a big hot mess? Does any parent really have everything under control? Yes. No. No. No, they don't. <laughs> no. And usually, though, the kids don't notice it. Usually, see, your daughter's getting this idea really early in age, because how old is she? She's six. Yeah. Normally, it's not until they're 16 that they start acting like that. So she's 10 years ahead. Okay, so that may, maybe means that I'm a good parent. No, nope, it actually means okay. that you're going to have 10 years of having your child judge you <laughs> earlier than normal. <laughs> Crazy stuff, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you through your parenting challenges. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. 
Dr. Matt, along with Jeff and Terry, bringing you the latest, the greatest, the research, the information you need to live healthier, happier lives. And uh, today we're going to be talking about why unsolicited advice can ruin your relationships. So just butt out. What they say. Hey, I I really like your outfit today. Um, Please don't let call me, it an outfit. Well, okay, but let me just make one suggestion oh, for tomorrow. What? Uh, maybe just iron the shirt. Ah, that's this a good time it's a good point. That's the really word point. the word outfit kind of assumes there was planning. Well, and it almost assumes that it all you know went together. There like was some... it was like it was. Like garanimals. Yeah, it was all bought on the same hanger. Yeah. So did that damage our relationship when I called? Yeah, your... and it was unsolicited. Okay, I didn't even solicit that advice. Now I I think you resent outfit because whenever you say outfit, it's usually you know somebody that's older that you're saying outfit. I really like your outfit. No, it's usually my wife. Really, See, my wife has outfits. Would you prefer ensemble? No. If you accessorize to your clothing, is it officially an outfit? I wouldn't use that word either. Really? Okay. I wouldn't use accessorize, uh, outfit, or... Um, well, the jewelry looks great. Thank I you. will say that. I like to call it bling. Okay, so I'm not getting any of the lingo yeah. right. No. It's my stuff. I like what you're wearing. You could just say that. I like Your the, clothes? I like, I like the, your... I like how sounds, you put that all together. That maybe sounds creepy, right? I like your clothes. <laughs> I like the way they smell. Okay, that's <laughs> that just turned yeah. really awkward. A weird there, yeah. Excellent. What's great about that moment is that we just showed everybody out there how you can take something too far, and then all of a sudden it just turns weird. I have yeah. never taken something too far. Wrong. Every day. Yeah. Uh, let's get to the headlines. Um, Terry, anything going on that we, you know, we need to be paying attention to today? The Trump administration announced this morning it's enacting new sanctions on Russia for its election meddling a month and a half after missing a congressionally mandated deadline. These are the uh, sanctions that Congress voted like, oh, there was like 10 people who voted against it in all of Congress, the House and the yeah. Senate, something like that. And then the Trump administration has been sitting on it, and then the deadline passed, and yeah, they didn't do anything. And so so, so this, this is from a month and a half ago. Well, that was the deadline. The, the actually, this whole thing was passed by Congress months before that. And this is because Russia interfered in our elections. Yeah, so the okay. new punishments include sanctions on the Internet Research Agency, a Russian troll farm that produced divisive political posts on American social media platforms during the 2016 presidential election. Yeah. Sanctions are imposed on 19 Russians, 13 of those individuals indicted by Robert Mueller. Interesting. Really? The Trump administration also accuses Russia this morning of a deliberate ongoing operation to penetrate the U.S. energy grid. Oh, great. They're trying to shut off our power like they allegedly tried to do in the Ukraine. Yes. Great. And by mm. the way, that think of how that could turn an election. Yeah. No power? Wow. That's how you get to the voting machines. Yeah. You may keep them off the internet, but uh, you got to plug them in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got you. Busted. In other news, U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill Wednesday to fund more security at schools exactly one month after the gunman killed 17 people at a high school in Parkland, Florida, and thousands of students take part in the national walkout in protest of gun violence. So they passed this as it was happening. Yeah, that's, that's about 10 good. o'clock in the morning yesterday. While the bill had bipartisan support, many Democrats were frustrated that it didn't include any gun control measures. This is a pretense that we are doing something while assuring the NRA that we aren't doing anything, Representative Steny Hoyer of Maryland said. He's the second-ranking Democrat in the House. 
So it looks like we're doing something we're really not doing. We're really anything. not. I was just pretending. Which is a lot of politics, it seems. Yeah. The vote was 407 to 10. Wow. Yeah. The bill attempts to curb school violence by providing more training for school officers and local law enforcement to respond to mental health crises, as well as, among other things, money to develop anonymous reporting systems for threats and deterrent measures like metal detectors and locks. There you go. Many Democratic lawmakers pressed Republican leaders to bring up gun control measures to expand background checks and ban assault weapons, but House GOP leaders continue to say they will wait and see if, if anything, the Senate can actually pass, and then they'll see what that happens at that point. Do they all realize there is an election for a lot of them this year? Sure. They also realize they're in safe districts, so they don't care. Yeah, but some of them aren't. Some aren't, but yeah. It's November. I mean, we're looking at, what, March now? Yeah. We've got plenty of time for 50 other things to happen to distract people. That's a great point. The United States on Wednesday backed up the U.K.'s assessment that Russia was behind the nerve agent attack against a former Russian spy in the United Kingdom. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said the U.S. also supports the U.K.'s decision to kick out Russian diplomats as a punishment. This latest action by Russia fits into a pattern of behavior in which Russian disregards the international rules-based order undermines the sovereignty and security of countries worldwide and attempts to subvert and discredit Western democracy, institutions, and processes, Sanders said in a forceful statement wow. condemning the Kremlin. Wow. A forceful statement. A forceful now, by statement. By the way, this is, this is really interesting. The timing of this happens yeah. to be the day after the U.K. forcefully just rebuked Russia. Yes. After something that only happened like a few weeks earlier. Mm-hmm. So... Th- the UK took a couple weeks. Yeah. Or, I mean, days, really. Right. And uh, now it's interesting. Now we're all over it. Now we're mad at Russia. Well, it took a couple days, yeah. Yeah. It's all right. We had to review the, the situation. Read the Daily Mail. And go, ha-ha. Aha. The okay. Daily Mail had good. it. We're on it. We're getting there. A new study in the American Academy of Neurology finds women who are physically fit may be 90% less likely to develop dementia. Really? But... Is there really a link between a healthy body and a healthy mind? The study tested the fitness of 191 Swedish women at age 50. They were given a fitness test and followed it for 44 years. Researchers found the women who were very fit had only a 5% chance of developing dementia later in life compared to much higher rates among women who had lower levels of fitness. Yeah. So, you know, got to do stuff. You got to do stuff, except gotta I, move. I know jump. the most healthy, fit woman ever in my life d- died of dementia and Alzheimer's. Yeah. So be careful. It's not always about fitness. Right. They're just looking at overall it's trends in the population. BMI. Is that what it is? It's always about BMI. Your body mass. Yeah, yeah, you're true. Finally, two individuals have been arrested by the Rancho Cucamonga Police Department. Right. Such a fun Love that thing name. to say. Rancho Cucamonga. They abbreviate later. I will not use the abbreviation. Thank you. I will say Rancho Cucamonga. Thank you. Just a warning. Thank you. So two individuals arrested Rancho Cucamonga on charges stemming from the alleged theft of $1.4 million in Marvel comic-themed collectibles. Oh, boy. Why are we hearing this story? According to a report from the Rancho Cucamonga Police Department, Ian Flores and Matthew Rink, or Rinky, depending on your pronunciation, were arrested for the burglary of a storage facility containing those goods owned by an unidentified victim. Could be Stanley. Could be. Could be. He could have a storage locker. You don't know. Or on, not. On February 22nd, 2018 at 6 p.m. Matt, where were you? February 22nd, 2018, 6 p.m. Were Ooh. you in Rancho Cucamonga? I was probably talking to a client. 
Okay. Well, the Rancho Cucamonga, as I said. Yeah. Again. Police department responded to a storage facility regarding the burglary. The victim was made aware of his storage units were burglarized after he received information. Several of his Marvel collectibles listed for sale on the internet were stolen. Some of those items were used in movie props. They were really? movie props, so they're like important I mean, that, stuff. Yeah, that could be. A search, you were in California recently. That's a good point. A search of the property uh, later, they found much of the alleged stolen. Part of all this was Captain America's shield. <gasps> the, real, the real shield? Doctor Strange's amulet called the Eye of Agamotto, amongst other comic books and other really high-priced wow. memorabilia. That's a that's a good that's a big deal. Yeah. It's a good get. You can't you can't you don't you don't mess with people's comic book stuff. Well, you do if you don't if you're not in that world and you don't care about it. The Rancho Cucamonga Police Department will come down hard with the iron fist of justice. Wow. There might have been an iron fist in there too, I'm not sure. But it would, would it matter if there's an iron fist of justice if not really that show is really they have the, shield. The, the the iron fist show is really disappointing on Netflix, so I'd not recommend that at all. Well, let's hope when they go to trial that they'll have the cloak of invincibility. What's it called? Cloak of I uh, forgot. Uh, invisibility. No. no, there's there's a cool name for Doctor Strange's cloak that's actually sentient. It like moves around by itself. It helps hey. him fight. It's kind of fun. Watch the movie. It's a great movie. No. You get to learn a lot about Doctor Strange. No, I, I've seen that movie. Yeah. Slept it's right through it. It's, oh. it's fun. It's forgettable. And it makes you want to just watch Inception instead of Doctor Strange. It does feel very Inception-y. Really? Yeah. Isn't it, just is, not as good. Is Inception-y a word? It, it, it is now. We just made it one. Yeah. Did you – we talked about it yesterday. The uh, Chinese reporter who rolled her eyes – we did not talk about that, but it, it is funny. Oh, we didn't? No, we mentioned I think we no, talked we about it later, but not on the show. So it really is a fascinating story. Um, there was, you know, so she, what's his name? Um, President Xi? Yeah. Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping. He, um, they're having, they're having big meetings in, and elections in China, and, uh, Somebody, a reporter was asking a question, a Chinese reporter was asking a question, and it was just a big softball question that was like very kind of pro-Chinese government. And the reporter, there was another Chinese reporter there that hated the idea that the question was such a softball. And then Mm. the woman, by the way, took 44 seconds to ask the question, which is a long time to ask a question. And it really irritated another reporter. And so on camera, this other reporter rolls her eyes in like disgust, like mean girls kind of disgust. And then just kind of crossed her arms and shook her head like this is the dumbest question. Um, but it, it's it's actually really incredible because this woman also – it's kind of anti-Chinese government. Right. And so it turned into a meme against the government. Yeah. And, and spread like wildfire through China. Hmm. So that is that woman not terrified? Like I would be. I'd be terrified. You you make an inadvertent re- just physical response to a, a question you don't deem worthy of being yeah. asked, and now you are what public enemy number one yeah. when it comes to the government because dissent is not. Uh, you can't do that. They will hunt you down. <laughs> but it's interesting because if you watch like a White House press briefing, and you have you know, competing views in those press rooms, 
you don't ever get eye rolls like that. No. When a Fox News reporter asks a question versus a CNN reporter, if they don't like the question, they just still seem to respect or I don't know. But maybe it's not as extreme. But I don't. Well, before I, I don't know if you actually had this like we do now. But the press secretary now she calls out the reporter when they make a face in response to what she's saying. Oh, does she now? Like she goes, "Don't make that face" or something. You're like, whoa! Interesting. <laughs> she just you know critiques them that way. Uh, sometimes you, if you watch enough of the reports, you get the people that are there every day from the major networks. Yeah, and they've been doing this for a while, so they don't really react to things. They just take down the information and move on. Right. If it's a new reporter, someone from a, a, a smaller publication or maybe the internet, a internet website or something, sometimes they just react. Yeah. Like you've got to be kidding me, and they say what? that in the meeting. You're like, whoa, that's odd. Isn't that funny? There's some decorum in this room. What are you doing? But, yeah, but in this case in China, yeah, I, she, I would be afraid because oh yeah. you're you're not in support of what's happening with the government, and right. then they'll come find you because you're you know you you now have become a a face of of resisting the Chinese government, and they don't want that at all. No. I mean, they took down Winnie the Pooh because people were comparing. Xi Jinping, the president, when he was walking with President Obama, that it looked like Winnie the Pooh was walking with Tigger. <laughs> yeah, but everybody so, <laughs> loves Winnie the Pooh. And by the way, Winnie the Pooh can't do an eye roll. A couple weeks ago, the government of China had their big meetings, and because of the way things were going on social media, they made it so you couldn't use the letter N in social media because it was being used in some way that was divisive against the government, so they took away your use of the letter N for a few days. Really? Yeah. What? I'm not sure what it was, but you just you, like put an asterisk. I don't know. Something else would pop up on all those social media networks if you push the letter in on your keyboard. Wow, hmm. it's good to be an American. Yeah, right. Or at least we know we're free for now. Wait a minute! I sense a song coming on. I'm proud to be an American. Or at least I know I'm free. God bless the USA. Thank you. Um, Jeffrey, do you have any empty news for us? Anything that we need to be focused on? Maybe that, uh, like, like eye rolling that we didn't know we needed to know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, sometimes you just can't get people to leave and you oh, can't, yeah. you can't make it clear enough that really you ought to just leave. You like when leave. you, when you throw a party, how do you indicate to people that the party's over? Let's, let's you just, I just, I turn the lights off. Really? Actually, yeah. And then I just go change, get in my robe, come out, walking around in my robe. It is tough that it, it, it's tough when the times that you're hosting a party also happens to coincide with a night where you just want to be left alone. Yeah. Um, this kind of has to do with this story, but there's a school that has made it very clear to this girl uh, who has dropped out of school. That she needs to leave her dorm. Maybe it's time for her to leave. This is in New York City. A New York City college is trying to evict a former student who, it says, is illegally squatting in her, her dorm room. Uh-oh. Hunter College has filed a lawsuit against, get this, 32-year-old Lisa Palmer, saying the woman owes more than $94,000 in unpaid residence hall fees since she dropped out in 2016. So she's been living there 
for two years beyond the time that she dropped out. The lawsuit says Palmer was denied summer housing in 2016. She remained in her dorm room despite the school sending several notices that she would be charged $150 a day if she stayed. Okay. That's bad. That's, that seems that's really bad. more than what I pay. Yeah. Uh, Palmer was issued a 30-day eviction notice in September 2017. She refused to leave, prompting the school to file its lawsuit. Palmer, a former geography major, says she plans to stay and fight the case. Well, I may not be able to finish school, but I'll be able to get through this lawsuit successfully. Wow. Can you not just – can they not just, you know, remove her? And you don't even have to do it forcefully. I'm assuming at some point she needs to leave to either go to a job or to go get food. And when she leaves, why not just empty out the room? Right. Not to feed into stereotypes at all, but can't they just – it's New York City. Can't they just send over a couple of thugs or something? No. See, that's a stereotype. There's not thugs in New York City. No. You know what you do? You send over rats. People have said – they have said – that there are thugs in New York. Uh, I didn't say it. No, no, no. All you've got to do. They've been saying that there have been thugs in New York. No. Who hasn't? Who loves so, <laughs> a dorm room so much you want to stay there? All you have to do I is know, get, right? the, get the – either get her a roommate in the dorm room that is just obnoxious. Yeah. Or, you know, the toenail clipping. Ooh. Singing in the middle of the night. Or mispronouncing certain words. Yeah. Like my wife had a roommate who would say strawberry. Instead of strawberry? What's wrong with that? Mm. Anyway. Uh, that's a good idea. Yeah. And just, just slowly. Or just like, like a passive aggressive way of getting them out. Right. If, if you can't do it aggressive aggressive, then just do yeah. passive aggressive. This is good. Yeah. I mean, but maybe she's just doing it to be cool because, you know, nothing is cooler than a 32-year-old living in the dorms with a bunch of 18 and 20-year-olds. Dropout geography major. Yeah. She's probably become the dorm mom. <laughs> it's not... It's not easy, folks. It's not easy. Well, up next, we're going to talk about why unsolicited advice can ruin your relationships. You're not going to want to miss that one. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you keep uh, love alive. Have you ever been sitting around with a bunch of friends and family and they're giving you, you know, they're telling you their their difficulties, their life stories. And then the next thing you know, somebody pipes in and starts trying to fix those problems. They start psychoanalyzing each other. You know, maybe sometimes even the best of intentions, giving advice can do more harm than good. And a few months back, I spoke with Richard Jolson, who's a clinical social worker and psychotherapist and author of the book, Help Me, a Psychotherapist's Tried and True Techniques for a Happier Relationship with Yourself and the People You Love. We talked about why unsolicited advice can ruin relationships and how we can communicate better. I started the interview by asking, when is the best time to give advice to others? Because they they don't seem to make it easy on us sometimes. Well, that's true. I think that we have a tendency to assume that when somebody shares a problem or a dilemma, they are looking for something. And I've discovered many times over that very often when someone talks about something that's troubling them, they really want an ear more than a mouth. Yeah, right. Um, I discovered that in a session many years ago. I'm a pretty interactive therapist, 
But this particular session, I was virtually silent the entire time. I said maybe three words in the hour. At the end of the session, the patient said to me, Dr. Jolson, this was one of the best sessions we've ever had. Mm. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You were extremely helpful. That was my cue to know that all I had to do was just listen, be empathic, tune in to what was being shared with me, and that was more than the person needed. It's so true. And we might feel like a driven or a compelling need to keep talking, um, but really the healing might come in just letting somebody else talk and let and you just empathize, understand. Exactly. I, I wrote a piece called Just Don't Do Something, Stand There. Uh, and the, the message of that piece was just listen and be empathically attuned and you'll be much more helpful and much more therapeutic to the person in stre- on distress than if you were to give, you know, five different recommendations and six different suggestions. Um, so that, uh, that was a very important lesson for me as a person and as a psychotherapist, and I've used it ever since. Mm. The other thing I do is that when I think that some sort of advice or something I can contribute is really indicated, I ask permission. <clears throat> I want to make sure that the welcome mat is out before I come in. Huh. So I will say, uh, would you like to hear what I have to say about that? And sometimes somebody will say, this could be a friend or a patient. Uh, no, that's okay. <laughs> and then I know that all they wanted was my ear. Yeah. But if they say, oh, yeah, what do you think? What do you think I should do? How do you, what, what do you think about my situation? Then I feel as though I've been welcomed in and my comment will be appreciated. Because, I mean, I even have people that ask for my advice, but they still want to just, they want me to listen. Exactly. But, but you, they, they ask for it because that's how they might start the conversation, right? They're just trying to get you in. Well, it's, it's sort of almost uh, people take it as an implicit request, which it sometimes is and sometimes isn't. Mm. Uh, there was a person recently who was struggling with the fact that after a year uh, since his wife died, he was having trouble taking his ring off his finger. Uh, it was sort of a way to keep her with him, and he was very comfortable to uh, have the ring on his finger. He was beginning to date after a year, and several people voluntarily suggested that it was time for him to take the ring off. Hmm. He should take the ring off. Why is that still ring, that ring still on your finger? Don't you think it's time to remove it? He was upset. He resented it. He felt misunderstood and unhelped. Hmm. Um, that's not what he was looking for. He was just looking to share his struggle about what to do with a friend or right. a colleague. And instead of it being, instead of it, I mean, it's in a way giving him the advice, just put the ring on tighter, right? It's just like, okay, nobody understands me, so I need, I miss her because she's the only one that understood me or whatever. But you're, you're not, you're absolutely right. That's exactly the reaction he had. Gee, yeah. I think I'd, this is, they're trying to take her away from me is mm. the way he responded. Yeah. Rather than suggesting I take my ring off. So slower is faster in this situation. Like that's right. We're trying that's to be efficient. Right. Like just get the ring off your finger. But you've got to do it with them, not against them. But people are very surprised when they get that kind of a reaction that says, "I didn't want that," or "It's not helpful," or "I wish you hadn't said that." Mm. They're very surprised and sometimes wounded by what they perceive to be a lack of gratitude or appreciation for the wisdom of their advice. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is even if it were right advice, it, it didn't work because 
it didn't move them further toward where they needed to be. I mean, that's right. It so, was unsolicited. So even if you're right, if you do it the wrong way, it's not going to work. Well, another that's right. And another problem is that people have a tendency to get very invested in the advice they give. Mm. And they get upset when that advice is not instantly accepted. Um, you know, it could be as simple as, you know, honey, do you think I should wear the red dress or the blue dress? He says the red dress. She then decides on the blue and he gets upset. Right. Because, you know, his wisdom was obviously not heeded and he doesn't understand why he was asked in the first place. Well, his suggestion, his response helped her to decide. Hmm. That was the value of the, of the information he was actually asked for. But people get upset when they give advice and it's ignored as they see it. So maybe there's a better way. So instead of asking for advice, you could just ask for some Give me your give me your insight. Give me your opinion. Not I mean, advice almost implies that I might take it. That's right. But and, and I guess that in the end, a lot of people aren't asking for advice. They're, you're just giving it to precisely. them. Hmm. What um, What are some other things we need to watch out for when when giving advice? I mean, it, it seems like like you said, a lot of us, you know, are very possessive about the advice we give. We we want it to be taken and heeded. Um, are there other rules about giving advice we need to pay attention to? Well, I think sometimes the advice we give may be a little too much about us and not enough about them. Mm. So that we are bestowing our knowledge, our thoughts, our ideas, without being sufficiently tuned in to the particular needs of the other individual. And that can also feel as though the advice is misguided, or, or aimed poorly or particularly unhelpful because it may be what that person would do, but no way would it be the thing that the listener would do. Mm. So I think we have to be especially sensitive. And advice, you know, people are very, very, um, you know, I had, a, I had a patient who couldn't decide whether to date somebody. <clears throat> so she surveyed her friends and she found out that five of them thought she should continue the relationship and five of them thought she should discontinue (laughs) the relationship. So she came in to have me break the tie. Oh, wow. And I said to her, well, what do you think you should do? And she said, I have no idea. She really hadn't consulted with herself. She Mm -hmm. had just surveyed her support network and wound up being no better off for the trying than, in fact, more confused. Mm. Um, And it even an appropriate question in the first place. You're right. And boy, you look at that and you think, so half of them are going to be bugged or offended or wrong on this decision. And now for the rest of her life, if she stays with the guy, half of them are going to think, oh, that was a big mistake. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I mean, it's that's why you got to be careful what you say, right? Because That's people, right. and what amazes me is, is that people do listen. They do take your advice. I mean, not always, but there's a lot of people that do what you say. Well, that's that's part of the problem, and it can be ruinous to a relationship. Um, there was a, a patient who was having serious difficulty with his romantic partner, shared that dilemma with his sister, and rather than listen and consider and ask questions and help him think it through, her immediate response was, well, why don't you just dump her and get somebody else? Mm. Uh, that was about as unhelpful as she could have been, and basically he kind of felt as though he lost her as a resource for the future mm-hmm. because it so tainted their relationship and her her value 
as a as a good ear because she was so quick to say something that seemed so uh, inappropriate. Yeah, just like like yeah, you don't care. You don't even understand. So I mean, part of that, I guess, is once you're in and trying to understand the issue, I always I always suggest you don't. Even if you have a quick answer, save it. Like, go understand more. Tell me more what you're concerned about. That's right. Try to get them talking more before you give any advice. Well, it's really about helping the person decide for themselves. Right. The best one can do, whether that's a therapist or that's a friend or a colleague, the best thing you can do is sort of facilitate the decision-making on the part of the individual and not sort of preempt them by bestowing your advice or your knowledge first. Mm, so true. And I guess that's the that's they'll be more motivated, right? If if they come up with the answer on their own or with you, they're more they're more motivated to actually implement what they're talking about. That's right. That's right. That's um, one of the things I'm I'm focused on in my practice is making sure that people just don't get very smart about what's the matter, but they find a way to utilize their insight. Mm. There are too many people who seem to be insight rich and change poor. Yeah. Um, and that's unfortunate, and that's why any good therapy really has to help people utilize their knowledge, their insight, the wisdom they get from other people, uh, so that things become better, which is why people ask for help in the first place. Because mm. a lot of people keep – they just – they have a better story, a better explanation. Now they're more able to explain why they you know, struggle so much in their marriage, but they're not changing anything. That's right. Oh, people you see a that a lot. in relationships to recycle some of the same issues and the same arguments, and they don't advance the cause of their union because they are still struggling and not resolving anything. Mm. Mm. Too often in oh, yeah. relationships. Oh, that's a big, big deal. We're speaking with Dr. Richard Jolson, and uh, he is the author of the book Help Me, which is a psychotherapist's tried and true techniques for a happier relationship with yourself and the people you love. And today he's talking about uh, how you need to watch out for unsolicited advice and giving unsolicited advice because it may end up harming your relationship. Uh, Dr. Jolson, thank you again so much for being with us. My pleasure, Matt. Talk about, um, in your book, one of the things that you mentioned is a, is listening patience. The um, Just, I, I guess, explain it to us. What is and how do we go about developing listening patience? Well, one of the things I've observed, especially in working with couples, is that very often people look as though, seem as though they're listening, but really are not at all. Uh, they may be formulating their next comment, uh, developing a response to what's being said, defending against what they don't like hearing from a, an upset partner. And so they very often don't really take in the information and process it. Hmm. Uh, when I've observed this sometimes, I've said to a partner, would you please repeat what you just heard from him or her? And often I've discovered that they simply cannot do it. Right. Um, so listening patience is really about being able to tune in and truly hear what's being said because it's valuable just by virtue of the importance of that person. And you need the information in which to be able to participate in a meaningful dialogue. Mm -hmm. I've seen it too, where they ask you a question because they kind of know they should, and then you know immediately they're not listening. And it, 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 it just it, – it, you become so 
disheartened that you're like, you don't even want to finish your answer. Well, it, it, uh, sometimes it, it really indicates that the person is about two or three degrees off the mark. Mm. And that probably has to do with the fact that they were distracted by their own formulation of a next comment. Yeah. I also emphasize the distinction between reacting and responding, which is very central to being a patient listener. Reacting is something that you do immediately. It's usually emotionally driven. It takes about two seconds, and it's not nearly as thoughtful and thorough and useful as a response, which is a little more measured, a little bit more thoughtful, and usually much more useful. Hmm. Uh, When people interact with each other, there's nothing wrong with saying, well, let me think about that, or, you know, I need to think about, I need to consider what you're saying. That is a good sign to me when somebody does that, as opposed to jumping on the comment with their reaction, which sometimes can be harsh and, and sort of a counterpunch, yeah. rather than a real response that is constructive. Right. And um, even the, the reaction could be my way of trying to control you or control the conversation, right? right. I could be using my emotional reactions to take this where I want it to go. Mm. Does talk about willingness. You bring it up that uh, just the importance of sometimes what they really need to know isn't your answer to a situation, but your willingness to be there. That's right. That's right. Being present and being involved and being engaged can be much more important than uh, anything you actually say. Mm. It's sort of like the issue of... um, A lot of couples, uh, one partner will often complain about the unhelpfulness of their partner. Um, When that partner gets it and finally offers to help in some specific way, they are relieved of the burden of having to do so because all that person wanted was to know they were available and not necessarily to help. Mm. The wife who says to her husband, you know, you never helped me bathe the children, um, all of a sudden, after years of listening to that, begins to bathe the children, and she comes in and says, Honey, that's okay. You don't have to do that. I'll take care of the bath. Yeah. And all she wanted was to know that he was available and willing, not necessarily to do the actual work. Hmm. That's so true. And, and sometimes because we're so reactive, we don't even want to be willing and available. We just are reacting to, oh, now she's judging me, saying I don't ever help. Oh, boy. So it, it pushes one the other, in the other direction. Mm, so, That's so right. true. How do we come down off of these conversations? Have you found uh, a, an easy way to not get emotionally sucked into what's going on in the conversation? Well, I think part of the problem is that some of these conversations can be very heated, very emotionally charged. And so it ignites anger. And unfortunately, once the anger kicks in, the essence of the conversation is essentially lost. It mm. becomes all about the anger. Yeah. Two people are having a conversation. They're getting somewhere. Somebody gets angry. And all of a sudden, the only thing that they want to talk about is that person's anger. And so the value of the topic is gone until the anger either recedes or disappears some other way. Mm. This is a very, very common problem in much uh, in a lot of couple sessions, where the anger takes over and the issue is momentarily lost. Right. So it's so important to be able to bind the anger or to use the anger constructively. People use their anger destructively too often and too easily. But you know, you can say, 
gee, that really makes me feel angry when you said that. That's much more useful than to be angry mm. and to use it as a weapon against the person who you're trying to work things out with. Yeah. And, and I guess, too, it keeps the conversation going. Because usually if you're anger, you're either going to, you know, escalate and fight or you're going to run and, and, and hide, which usually shuts down the conversation. That's right. It's a notorious conversation killer. Mm. And people trying to work out differences, resolve conflicts, can't afford yet another episode of recreating their conflict because they're angry. No, exactly. Yeah, this keeps the pattern going. That's right. As we wrap up, what would you say is the one thing? The one thing that makes the biggest difference in, I guess, giving feedback to others and taking feedback from others? Well, I think, I think the most important thing I could think of to answer that with is that people need to appreciate the fact that change is always possible. There are too many people who have a tendency to foreclose on change. They treat their problems as though they were conditions that can't be changed. They have to be lived with. And I'm a big fan of taking anything that people present and framing it as a problem that needs to be solved. Mm. Conditions are accepted and tolerated. Problems are actively uh, solved. So anything that is perceived or experienced as a problem has a much better chance of undergoing change than something people feel is nothing they can do anything about. Yeah, that hopelessness, huh? That's right. Mm. And despair is the biggest change killer of all. Oh, powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. We appreciate you, Dr. Richard Jolson. Everybody go to the website, richardjolsondsw.com, richardjolsondsw.com, and you can get more information about his book, Help Me, A Psychotherapist's Tried and True Techniques for a Happier Relationship with Yourself and the People You Love. Powerful stuff. Do not get discouraged. Let's get, let's get some solutions. Let's get some tools. Let's get the help we need. We'll take a break, come back, visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's coming up on their show at the top uh, the top of the hour. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to lead into BYU Sports Nation with a little pick-me-up music. They were so close, yet so far away. Uh, BYU lost last night to Stanford by just oh, just so, just three points. One three-pointer. Let's go down to BYU Sports Nation and find out their take on the whole game. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Matt. Hi. How you guys doing? Good. Well, and uh, yeah. and the latest news was out just moments ago from John Rothstein of Fan Rag Sports. He reports that associate head coach Heath Troyer will be the next head coach at McNeese State. Really? In men's basketball. So potentially a one and done for Heath Roy at BYU, who returned to change the culture and the offense and the defense. And BYU started 12-2 and two and then uh, kind of peaked from there, went to the NIT, beat St. Mary's late, had some nice things. Uh, could be out, it done. looks like, after oh. one year. Bummer. I like Heath. Heath. It's a great candy bar. I like Heath bar, yeah, exactly. You got to love it. Well, that's uh, – by the way, thanks for bringing the late breaking news. Yeah, that, this just came out like three minutes ago. This is just out. How did you feel about the game? I mean, it was, boy, talk about back and forth excitement. Love the fight. Yeah. Love the uh, the no-quit attitude. I like that certain guys were big in the moment. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it, it was 
it was tough to watch uh, that group of guys bow out one and done in in March. Yeah, it's tough to win on the road. It's tough to beat a you know a team that went eleven and seven in the Pac twelve. Granted, the Pac twelve down this year, but still eleven and seven in Pac twelve. BYU got into some foul trouble. Um, couldn't shoot threes that well outside of Elijah Bryant making a couple. Um, TJ has really struggled. Yoli Child's got in some some real foul trouble. BYU. Got some nice bench production, but ultimately uh, uh, bows out and uh, one and done in the NIT in back-to-back years, unfortunately. Hmm. Okay. So uh, now what? do they? I guess they just wash their clothes and hang them up. Now what? We'll discuss that. Uh, what, what are the, what's the potential impact of uh, Heath Schroer leaving, if that's the case? Uh, wh- who transfers? Because that happens every year. There's a couple of guys that leave that you don't, you don't think uh, necessarily will leave. Because BYU didn't have any seniors, man. So potentially this whole roster could return. Ooh, that's good news. And they have uh, some guys that they like coming off missions. Uh, a particular uh, kid, a six nine kid from Timfew named Gavin Baxter off a mission who basically just dunks everything. Um, <laughs> they're really excited about him. What kind of impact could he have? St. Mary's loses three seniors. Could be, be number two in the league. Lots of offseason questions. And what's your favorite moment from this year? And how will you define this year? And uh, what's the impact of the Heath Schroer news? Lots to discuss. That's great. Steve Cleveland will help us answer some of those questions. It's a great show. Oh, yeah. Hey, here's a question for you. Um, NCAA tournament. Yeah. Going on. Or has it, start, it starts today. Yep. Well, uh, it started start, Tuesday technically and Wednesday Tuesday. In the first four, but oh. the, real, the real fun begins yeah. today, right? Today's the first full day. Now, here's yep. the question, because it seems like there was an FBI investigation where a lot of those, a lot of the top teams were were named in the investigation. Mm-hmm. So when this whole NCAA thing proves out, one of those teams that were under investigation could be the team that wins. Yeah. And then they, I guess, maybe forfeit a title down the road. It, it, is, how's that going to play out? Well, we'll see. Uh, it didn't come up in the selection committee room, and it's kind of unresolved, like you said. So we'll we'll see. Like, if Arizona wins the title and Sean Miller is to have been found uh, to have given $100,000 uh, to a player based on an FBI wiretap, like, yeah, stuff's going to go down. We'll yeah. see. So, I, But th- this this much uh, we can postulate. Uh Nothing's going to happen in the next four weeks. They're just going to ride because that wave. Why would they interrupt themselves? Yeah, in the middle of True. arguably the greatest uh, tournament there is. Correct. Ooh, ooh, in sports. Yeah, like the the you could argue you know the playoffs are good. I don't know yeah. the NCAA tournament's pretty exciting. The, the funny thing about the NCAA tournament is there's only like six teams, ten, twelve that can actually win it. So, so the fun of like the upsets and whatever, it's like, well, you, the first weekend everybody likes it, but everyone doesn't really like it later. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 we want our power schools in the final four, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's true. <laughs> have you filled out a bracket? Uh, today, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> oh, you better hurry. You have like 15 minutes. Oh, is it only? Oh, I thought I had to like four. Uh, no. <laughs> there are four games at four different intervals all day. There's 16 games today. Oh, no. 16. It starts in like 20 minutes, dude. Okay. Oh, Matt, okay. you can I'm back. I would, show. I would go to break now. Okay, that's what we'll do. And I would fill out my bracket. Oh, my heavens. Because, yeah, my son will be so disappointed if I Jeff, don't. Jeff, get ready to go to break. Uh, okay, guys, you guys go to your. You guys go do your thing, and then I'm going to get on my bracket. Okay. Take care. Take, be good. Get Remember the Zags into bye. the Sweet 16. Bye, bye, bye Matt. <laughs> See you, bye. I got to get on that. I kept. I just thought I had till four. Woo! <laughs>
Is there some sort of a cash prize, or is this just for the this would be bragging with my rights? Sons. This is the bragging rights in my family. Okay. But pretty me, it's pretty much for me. It's just yeah, no, I like that. I've been to there. I've been to that town. I like that team. I have no idea. Hmm. I mean, I know certain teams that'll probably be there. Have you ever done it randomly? No. Why? But, but I, one of my sons did last year. It's very random. And how well did he do? He did very well. That was the bracket that he did best. Just in. do that. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'll do, for heaven's sakes. Um, boy, I, I'm telling you, you can't be under indictment, and then that would be a bummer if somebody that the FBI is investigating then takes it. <laughs> it's kind of a downer. That's a that's a sad day in the NCAA, but it is, I truly believe, one of the greatest tournaments. I think they're right about that. It's the, pound for pound, dollar for dollar, most exciting two or three weeks coming up. Ever. Wow. Because you just love More those... so than the World Series with the Los Angeles Dodgers? Yes. I would disagree with you. Well, there we have it. It's so sad that they lost this year, last year. Um, hey, up next... You're we're a monster! Oh, right now we're going to be talking about our hero of the day. Two utility company workers who traveled to Pennsylvania area to help restore power from recent storms are now being called heroes. Not for turning the lights back on, but for helping save the lives of people who were involved in a bad crash in Delaware County. The men happened to be right there when it happened, and they jumped into action. It was frightening. It really was. I could tell he was in distress, said Daryl Davis. Davis is a lineman for the local electric utility. He and his team were brought in from Chicago last Saturday to assist with the widespread outages. Little did he know he'd return home as a hero. Though he doesn't consider himself one, last week Davis was beginning his 16-hour workday on his way to restore power to customers when a horrific multi-vehicle accident occurred. About 8.45 a.m. on Tuesday, a car tried to cut him off and ended up pushing into another car uh, or another car into oncoming traffic. They had a head-on collision. One car going north, the other south. It was just horrible, Davis said. Davis then tried to open the driver's side door, but it was stuck. So he opened the back door just as the victim was becoming overwhelmed with heavy smoke. Davis just kept saying to himself, get him out, get him out as fast as he could. Anyway, they did. They got the person out. He looked like he was really in shock, and he had to be in his 80s, upper 80s, but they saved his life. So I'm telling you, it's all it takes, folks, is a, a guy like Daryl Davis and his and his fellow uh, linemen to, to help be the heroes we all need. Folks, that's the show. But we need everybody, all of us, to pick up our lives, do a little bit better, try a little bit harder, and let's uh, let's change the world one person at a time. We'll be back again tomorrow. BYU Sports Nation is up next.